VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Does God talk to people? Throughout history, several big names have claimed to be prophets, with some of them starting massive religions, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad. But even if some higher power really once gave us prophets, is God still talking to select people? Well, some think so. Jeffrey Lundgren, thought so, thought he was one of them, the most important living prophet, or at least he claimed to be. I can't believe it took so long for me to hear about this guy. When one of our producers, Sophie Evans, sent his information my way for him to be considered as a topic, I searched his name, checked his Wikipedia page, which is not a great place for in-depth research, but it's a perfect place to get a feel for a topic, and I only needed to read the first half of the first sentence to know he was right for time suck. Jeffrey Don Lundgren was an American self-proclaimed prophet, cult leader, and mass murderer. Uh, yeah, sold. The story's wild. Even wilder than it sounds after that brief intro. Born in Missouri in 1950, Jeffrey Lundgren grew up in a household where his parents were both solidly middle class, also prominent members of a Mormon splinter group, the largest of the splinter groups, the Restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jeffrey himself didn't have much of a thing for religion as a kid, but that would change. Would it ever? After high school, Lundgren enrolled at Central Missouri State University, where he met Alice Keeler, a fellow member of the RLDS Church. The two were married in 1970, after which Lundgren enrolled in the U.S. Navy, serving during the Vietnam War, honorably discharged in 1974, by which time he and Alice had two kids, and they would go on to have two more. Jeffrey could have had a nice life, a small-town family with two sets of involved grandparents, a good job for Jeffrey based on his church connections, lots of friends, helpful neighbors around, nice little slice of the American dream for many. But that would not happen. Instead, Jeffrey constantly stole from his jobs, leading him, uh, leading to him getting fired over and over and over, going further into debt. Debt made worse whenever he made extravagant, often secretive purchases, which he often did. Meanwhile, Alice continued to believe that, you know, the man she had married, a man who was quickly turning out to be no good, was the prophet that she had envisioned when a camp counselor once told her in high school that she would marry someone important. And in the end, I guess she did kind of marry someone important, just in the worst of ways. In the early 80s, Lundgren and his family would move to Kirtland, Ohio, where he became a guide at the Kirtland Temple of the RLDS. Around this time, he became convinced that he could see a secret pattern 
in which messages from God revealed themselves to him, something that made him super special, something that made him important, a true prophet. Peddling this to other RLDS members, especially those who were dissatisfied with the recently more liberal-leaning RLDS church, they were now allowing women to have a greater say in church affairs, Jeffrey soon amassed some followers. And then he would tell his followers to call him and Alice, mom and dad, give him their incomes, follow his teachings, move in with him in a rented farmhouse. And it wasn't long after that that Jeffrey declared himself a true prophet, a sticky-fingered prophet. As a temple guide, he embezzled between twenty-five dollars and $40,000 from the temple. He was fired. His family evicted from their lodgings in October of 1987. But by then, Lundgren had already started building a little church of his own, a small but very devoted church, a cult that included a dozen-ish people and their small children. And then a vision from God, one of many told Jeffrey it was time for Christ's return. But first, there needed to be blood. Jeffrey and his followers needed to kill everyone living around the RLDS temple he'd been fired from and he needed to behead the man who fired him and behead the rest of that man's family. Blood sacrifices must be made in order for Jeffrey, his wife, Alice, their son, Damon, and nine others to become the new 12 apostles of the end times. And this is just a small part of the twisted, insane story I'm telling today. Just a few details from the first half. Part one of two of the incredibly twisted story of Jeffrey Lundgren and the Kirtland cult killings. Today, on another doomsday, killer Christ, cult, cult, cult edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the cult of the curious yet again. Another interesting topic to examine thoroughly today. I'm Dan Cummins, a suck master, sometime idiot of the internet, possible deep state puppet, meat sack who has never been tapped to join a secret society. Why not? And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise be to Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, Thanks again to those of you who have come to any of my recent stand-up shows this year. Had a blast in Seattle recording this right after being there. Both shows so fun at the Neptune. Uh, The Late Show. Man, one of my favorite shows this year. Wow. Uh, By the time this episode drops, only two cities left for the uh, Burn It All Down Theater Tour. Cleveland and Columbus. Come on, Ohio. Let's fucking go. We're going to be in Ohio for most of uh, today's suck and next week's suck. And then it's going to be Phoenix, Bloomington, and Madison. Yep, Madison, Wisconsin. Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, You know where Phoenix is. Pumped to be working on new bits. Those shows always have such a fun energy to them. Links to all tickets at dancomas.tv. And then hopefully it will not be too long uh, for the new special I recorded back in December to be living somewhere where you can watch it. Uh, It was directed by a longtime friend of mine, very talented, awesome dude, Mike O'Dare. O'Dare worked his uh, magic on the new survival series on Netflix, Outlast. 16 players working to win a million dollars in the Alaskan wilderness, so check that out. I don't want to spoil it with more details, but, you know, O'Dare worked on it, so it's it's amazing. And then there's the show he created, Making Fun. Uh, You know, uh, this show, man, a friend of mine, uh, their kids, it's like their favorite show ever, is Making Fun. Uh, expert maker of just about anything, Jimmy DeResta fields kids' uh, ideas for delightfully pointless inventions, and then if he's in the mood, he'll uh, he'll build those with his with his pals. Uh, so go, Mike O'Dare. So happy for him. Uh, cool dude. A quick charity update: uh, We were able to donate thanks to the Patreon Space Lizards and Roberts and Annabelles over on Scared to Death fourteen thousand fourteen dollars to Sleep in Heavenly Peace. 
Sleep in Heavily Peace, a group of volunteers who build, assemble, and deliver beds to families in need. Uh, you know, you never uh, if you're never getting a good night's rest, you're starting off every day at a disadvantage. And this wonderful organization has chapters all across the U.S. If you want to get involved, you want to offer up your skills, you can go to shpbeds.org to learn more. We were able to add uh, also $1,557 to our scholarship fund. Had a lot of applicants so far this year, which was awesome. And you can you can apply all the way up until April 24th, uh, 3 p.m. Central Time. Uh, easy way to get the application, just go to badmagicmerch.com. Look for the Cummins Family Scholarship Fund on the top of the page, the link. Click it, follow the instructions. And finally, just a quick merch announcement. Going a little more classic this week with the traditional monogram lockup on premium tees and hoodies available in a few colors. Kind of earthy vibe. I can see outdoorsy suckers enjoying this set. You can go to badmagicmerch.com to check it out. And now back to the realm of cults for this week's episode. The first of a two-part series on Jeffrey Lundgren. Safe to say the name Jeffrey was already ruined forever here in the Suckverse, thanks to Epstein. If not, uh, Lundgren is going to finish uh, tarnishing off into, obliv- into oblivion. Uh, in some ways, we have covered stories like Jeffrey Lundgren's before. But man, but not this one. I laughed harder so far during the... Uh, the, the extra research and just going through Sophie's research that I have for a topic in a long time. I got, uh, but we've done a deep dive into Mormonism, the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, which would form the basis of Lundgren's spiritual teachings and touched on other fringe Mormon sects that have done people harm in that episode, like uh, Warren Jeff's FLDS, the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We've also covered cult stories that look similar to how Lundgren structured his going back to the Manson family and Spawn Ranch, like Manson, Lundgren would have his followers live with him in squalor, form a, a sort of family. Uh, like Manson, Lundgren would pressure his followers to murder as part of a doomsday prophecy. But instead of helter-skelter, a coming race war, he taught that if they uh, murdered some sinful people, God would start uh, the judgment day process. And Lundgren's followers would inherit a new cleansed earth after fighting literal battles against demons. And like both Manson and former suck subject, Emmanuel David, that uh, fake prophet, Lundgren would claim also to be a prophet. Like Emmanuel David, uh, Lundgren lived mostly from theft and grifting. But in other ways, the story of Jeffrey Lundgren is completely unique. He was not born in poverty like Manson, didn't come out of a cult-like environment of his own, like with the FLDS. And instead, he was well brought up, church going, but not extremely devout as a youth, um, came from an established, well-to-do family in Independence, Missouri, didn't really start saying he was anything special, you know, like a prophet until he was in his 30s. Even after he started seriously putting together some cult leader-like religious beliefs, it would still be several years before the Lundgren family packed up and moved to Kirtland, Ohio with a few followers. His, his prophethood was a, a slow burn. And well, I could say more, but I, I'm going to stop. Don't want to spoil some surprises up ahead. I want to let this very little known, so fucking crazy story unfold with you not knowing what's coming around the corner. talk some structure. Uh, this will be the first of a two-part series, as I mentioned, on Jeffrey Lundgren and his cult. Though we've covered cults and murderers in less time, we're doing this as a two-parter because there's simply too many fascinating details to cover in one episode. You know, sometimes you're just limited to uh, the source material, and luckily with this one, we got some great stuff. Uh, big thanks to authors like Pete Early, who wrote Prophet of Death, The Mormon Blood Atonement Killings, captured so many juicy details. Uh, his book and others about Jeffrey were written in the 80s. Not all of them made it into digital form. The story they captured did not make it to the digital age like many other, frankly, less interesting stories. 
Uh, to understand somewhat how Jeffrey was able to pull his cult shit off, to understand why his followers truly believed he was a modern-day prophet, we have to learn a bit about the RLDS and its beliefs, the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known since 2001 as the Community of Christ, second-largest denomination in the Latter-day Saint movement. Uh, the church headquartered in Independence, Missouri, reports roughly 250,000 members in 1,100-ish congregations in 59 countries. And to understand the RLDS, I'll need to provide a little refresher on Mormonism overall, covering some important points from the church's history. Then we're off and running in a timeline starting with the future cult leader's birth. And in that timeline, we'll cover Jeffrey's childhood, as well as some of the childhood of his wife, Alice, and how RLDS church teachings, which taught that the important prophet Joseph Smith predicted, uh, or you know what he predicted, was still to come, how this opened the door for some to believe that Jeffrey was the prophet that Joseph Smith had envisioned before he died. Well, we'll cover how uh, Alice should have never married Jeffrey. Holy shit. Did she ignore so many massive red flags? Uh, Get ready for some super kinky sex shit that I am strongly guessing many of you will find upsetting. Uh, We'll cover their early days as a couple, Jeffrey's failed stints at multiple jobs, how Jeffrey started to study scripture more and believed he had unlocked a secret pattern through which he could speak to God. And again, I don't give, I don't want to give away too much, but maybe just maybe uh, this lunatic had his cult watch Rambo first blood, not for escapist action, but for inspiration in planning a bloody revolt. So much weird shit's coming ahead. Uh, Let's get into all this absurdity. Diving back into Mormonism. We previously covered all of Mormonism or about as much as you can cover in one two and a half an hour, a two and a half hour long podcast in episode 157 back in September of 2019. Uh, we talked then about how some say that Mormonism is a cult, but also that the line between new religion and cult can be pretty blurry for many. It is a bit subjective. In that episode, we generally fell somewhere in the middle saying that Mormonism was a little culty. If you consider modern prophets, more strict emphasis on tithing than many churches and rigorous social schedules that don't really allow for spending time with non-Mormons culty. Uh, The LDS is strict with tithing. I don't know if I really mentioned that and that suck. Uh, You're simply not allowed to access certain sacred spaces and saving rituals of a Mormon temple unless you donate, you know, consistently 10% of your income to the church. And this still goes on today, according to some recent Salt Lake Tribune articles. But still, there are a lot of other so-called religions with similar practices. Jeffrey Lundgren, no doubt about it. With that motherfucker, he certainly ran a cult. A cult informed and inspired by some of the teachings of the RLDS. Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, RDLs, sometimes referred to as a splinter group from the mainstream LDS church, but you could also make an argument that the LDS is a offshoot of the RLDS. Uh, most Mormons belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS headquartered in Salt Lake City, has more than 15 million members worldwide. Mormons believe in the crucifixion, resurrection, divinity of Jesus Christ, same as other Christian churches. Followers of Mormonism also claim that God sent more prophets after Jesus's death, making it different from most other Christian churches. One of these prophets was, of course, Joseph Smith, who would write the Book of Mormon, allegedly copying it down from some golden plates he found and then publishing it in March of 1830. The Book of Mormon states that around 33 CE, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus Christ appeared in North America and preached to the Nephites, a pre-modern Hebrew tribe who supposedly made it to the Americas many centuries before Columbus, who were in constant conflict with another Hebrew tribe that made it over, the Lamanites. 
And the Lamanites would eventually forget all about their Hebrew God and become ancestors of American Indians. And the Nephites, they would do all sorts of cool shit and be super righteous early Mormons, but then be slaughtered by the damn uh, Lamanites around 400 CE. Luckily, before they all died in 385 CE, a Nephi prophet named Mormon gave his records of a ton of early American events, including Jesus's extra teachings over here in America to his son Moroni. And then Moroni, literal last survivor of the Nephites, added more scriptural materials before sealing up what will become the Book of Mormon, what will be revealed to Joseph Smith in 421 CE. And what archaeological evidence is there for any of this? Zero. Literally nothing. Outside of the LDS church and its offshoots, no one seems to believe the Nephites and Lamanites ever existed. Uh, the beginning of Joseph Smith's involvement with all of this would begin centuries later, of course, Joseph Smith, confused about all the infighting between different Christian denominations, claimed he went into the woods in 1820 near his home in Western New York, near the town of Palmyra, to pray for guidance. When he's just 14, as he later describes it, he witnesses a pillar of light descending from heaven, followed by an image of God and Jesus Christ. This is called the first vision by Mormons. Three years later, September 21st, 1823, the young Joseph Smith, fearing that he had, uh, you know, has fallen off the right path, prays for forgiveness for all his sins and follies and receives another vision, this time of the angel Moroni. And Moroni now tells him about a sacred book written on some golden plates buried on a nearby hillside. Uh, but Joseph is not allowed to dig them up until four years have passed on September 22nd, 1827. To read the tablets, Joseph Smith apparently has some magical spectacles uh, and some precious stones called interpreters. Smith was no stranger to the use of stones uh, called seer stones often. His dad was a treasure hunter who believed in basically sorcery. And seer stones were literal stones used by treasure hunters to try and receive relations from God, uh, revelations to find buried treasure. Joseph Sr. and his sons spent part of the warm weather months treasure hunting using various divination tools, including seer stones, that when viewed at the bottom of a hat were said to convey a special sight. Well, when Joseph uh, Smith Jr. placed uh, the right rocks in the right hat, he said a piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was an interpretation in English, all according to Smith, of course. And less than a dozen other supposed witnesses, according to LDS doctrine, would see some of this shit. And a lot of other stuff happens. You can hear all about it in the full episode of Mormonism. But the important part is that due to all these visions he's receiving, Joseph Smith says he's a prophet. And early Mormons affirm this, and Mormons to this day continue to believe this. The entire religion is based 100% in Joseph Smith being a Latter-day Saint, a modern prophet. In Doctrine and Covenants, Basically, a list of Smith's revelations, uh, a core uh, book of scripture in the Mormon faith. Smith would declare himself a prophet outright with Doctrine and Covenants 28 saying, But behold, verily, verily, I say unto thee, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant Joseph Smith, for he receiveth them even as Moses. And thou shalt be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron to declare faithfully the commandments and the revelations with power and authority unto the church. And now, in saying that he was a prophet, Joseph Smith not only kicks off his new fledgling religion, he also permanently opens a door uh, in this religion, well, at least open so far, for anyone else to claim that they are also a prophet, that they have had another divine revelation from God and that they are, you know, the one who's actually right, not the main church. A core tenet of Mormonism, basically from its outset, is that the LDS movement 
began with the revelation from God, which began a process of restoring gospel of Jesus here on earth as in to be continued. And there is a belief that it continues today. This type of revelation could technically go on forever or as long as the church exists, a term known as continuous revelation. Continuous revelation provides individual Latter-day Saints with a testimony or testimonies described by Richard Bushman, another Dick, Dick Bushman, uh, and an American historian at Columbia University as one of the most potent words in the Mormon lexicon. A testimony is usually defined in Mormon denominations as knowledge or assurance of a truth that a person declares by the convincing power of the Holy Ghost. And sharing testimonies is a very important part of the Latter-day Saint experience to this day. This was canonized for Mormons in something known as the Wentworth Letter, the last section of which was canonized as the Articles of Faith. The 5th, 6th, 7th, and ninth Articles state the essence of Latter-day Saint belief concerning revelation. Starting with 5, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. We believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. We believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. And finally, we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pretending to the kingdom of God, right? So heavy emphasis on continued prophecy. Most, if not all Latter-day Saint offshoot denominations believe that the Lord will yet reveal many great important things to his church through modern apostles and prophets. Some go as far to claim that all leaders of their churches are called of God by prophecy and that each member of the church can receive personal revelation to strengthen their faith and guide them in their own lives. Each Latter-day Saint is expected to use personal revelation to determine how best to apply gospel principles and the commandments in his or her life in a path towards perfection. It is accepted that not all members will agree on how to interpret the same scripture. Rather, each person is responsible to determine how it should be interpreted for himself or herself. So thus, parents can receive revelation related to raising families. Uh, Individuals can receive revelation to help them meet personal challenges. Church officers may receive revelation for those uh, they serve. Uh, Apostles and prophets may receive revelation for the entire church. And because of, let's say, interpretive confusion, Mormon denominations do not believe that all revelations are created equal, if you will. Uh, You know, they're not all absolutely true as the person sharing them believes them to be true. Some revelations are inspired, yes, but also not infallible, which... uh, it all feels like after a lot of prophetic confusion in the church's early days, early leaders realized that they had to make it clear that not all prophecies are the same. Otherwise, the early church would have just torn itself apart. And, and I bet this loophole, not that other Mormon loophole, uh, was designed shortly after a few church members announced that they were prophets and then said some shit that almost no one else was on board with or that would have you know ruined the church movement. Uh, Behold, uh, tis I, uh, the prophet Josiah, and God has given me a great and powerful revelation. We are to relinquish all earthly goods and rely only on the kindness and generosity of strangers alone to provide us with shelter and sustenance as we travel the land barefoot and humble, preaching God's salvation with no care for our own earthly needs, only care uh, for God's glory. <clears throat> uh, y- uh, yes, o- okay, uh, uh, Josiah, that is, um, that, is, that is really great. That is nice, truly. But you know what? <laughs> 
I also had a revelation yesterday, and now I know why. God told me that while he does send many of us prophecies, some of them are, you know, kind of him shooting from the hip, and not really taking the time to think through what he said. Some of them are, uh, you know, fallible, like, like it's still God's word, 100%, but not like a good idea. Think of these prophecies as God's little jokes. He likes to kid around with us. And that is clearly one of the jokes, Josiah. Get rid of all of our stuff. That's a good one. Uh, thank you for sharing that obvious God joke about selling our things and living only for the God, for the Lord. Oh, that was great. I needed that, buddy. Uh, one early church leader wrote, we consider God and him alone infallible. Therefore, his revealed word to us cannot be doubted, though we may be in doubt sometimes about the knowledge which we obtain from human sources and occasionally be obliged to admit that something which we had considered to be a fact was really only a theory. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very diplomatic way to say that we can change our mind. If the culture determines that we're not in line with the culture based on what we thought God said, we can then realize that we kind of fucked up and didn't interpret things correctly and we can change it. A lot, a lot of things get lost in translation. Telephone game, you know, it's hard. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Uh, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith's successor, uh, taught that the greatest fear I have is that the people of this church will accept that what we accept what we say as the will of the Lord without first praying about it and getting the witness within their own hearts that what we say is the word of the Lord. I think it's pretty easy to see how fucking confusing these kind of statements can make LDS theology. Hey, we, hey, we do talk to God and we do share his messages correctly, but also don't take our word for it. You should talk to God yourself and see if what God says to you matches up with what God said to us, but it needs to because what we say is for sure God's word. And if you're not getting the same kind of thing on your channel, then your channel is scrambled. You know what? Shouldn't an all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent deity have a more clear and less confusing way to speak to his followers? I mean, it sure feels like it would be a lot cleaner if God just showed up on earth, spoke to all of us at the same time. We could all hear the exact same message, each in our own language, each of us in words that make the message perfectly clear to us. Then after God's done, we can all talk about what we just heard. It'll all match up. We can all be global citizens sharing the same God, sharing the same message, the same religion. How fucking beautiful. But instead, this incredibly all-powerful, insanely intelligent being communicates in a way that makes speaking to a customer service agent who barely speaks the same language while working in a noisy call center with a two-second delay seem ideal. Although Latter-day Saints believe that personal revelation is an essential part of the plan of salvation, leaders of the church emphasize that true personal revelation should never contradict official revelation from the leadership of the church, right? If you don't rank in the church hierarchy and you think your God is, you know, telling you something different than what we've taught you, well, newsflash, you're probably on the line with the devil. Hang up, sinner. Of course, those who are power hungry don't pay attention to the part about official revelation, right? They see revelation in a way of, well, Joseph Smith, he wasn't a church official. He was able to share some stuff that God forgot to tell everyone else, uh, you know, to, uh, through Jesus back in Galilee and Judea. Well, then by God, literally, uh, they can also share some new shit. Jeffrey Lundgren would be one of these power-hungry people. He would say that God gave him the power to truly understand chiasmus and see the pattern that unveiled powerful prophecy in Scripture. We'll get more into it in the timeline, but chiasmus is basically reading certain words that repeat in the Bible to uncover some hidden secret messages. Uh-huh. You know, because again, God is uh, is an unusual communicator. He could make everything clear and easy to understand, but you know, uh, challenges fun. Challenges are fun. 
You know, instead of making things clear, he acts like a, a marketing exec working at Ovaltine in the 1950s, mailing kids a Captain Midnight decoder ring if they send in three Ovaltine lids and a dollar. Why? Well, no one knows. Mysterious ways. Don't worry about it. Just believe. Uh, Jeffrey would argue that because of chiasmas, he discovered that God expressed himself through mirrored pairs, like two branches on a temple building or two lines in a verse that surround the same or that sound the same. You know, like God's the fucking Riddler from Batman. Uh, he then claimed that the pattern allowed him to communicate with directly with God, making him uh, a very important riddle-solving prophet. But Jeffrey didn't immediately spring this on his followers. No, of course not. God's prophet should be just as confusing and indirect as God himself. Got to got to match the communication technique to seem divine. Jeffrey and his wife Alice were cagey about this for years. When their followers spoke about their wishes to meet a real prophet, they would say something like, "You wouldn't know a prophet if he sat in front of you." Who wink, wink. Nod, nod towards Jeffrey. Over a period of years, Jeffrey slowly graduated from an in-depth reading of scripture to understanding the pattern to hear revelations directly from God. Or, you know, over a period of years, a blatant con artist devised a more honed a con, figured out how to introduce it, make it work. By the time he was claiming to be a real prophet and later claiming to be a God himself, his followers had already been, uh, been handing over their paychecks and living with the Lundgrens communally which puts a big hole in the theory that Jeffrey himself actually believed he was a prophet as much as anyone. An argument his lawyers would advance at his trial. They would use something similar to an insanity defense saying that Jeffrey had been so mistreated as a child, he began to have grandiose delusions. Was he even abused? We don't know that. Might've just had strict religious parents. And if he truly had grandiose delusions, how come he only declared that he was a prophet after his followers had turned over all their money and autonomy to him? How can he toe the line with conservative LDS teachings until he controlled his followers' lives? If he truly believed he was a prophet, wouldn't he be like one of those crazy guys wandering around the street with a, with a shirt off, talking to nobody? You know, how did, how did he hold down several jobs for at least a couple months at a time and keep it all quiet? How was he accepted by polite society at first until it no longer served him? Okay, almost time to really start getting to know Jeffrey now. Just need to take a, a look uh, first at the reorganized Church of Latter-day Saints to understand some more teachings teachings Lundgren would this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. if you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day what would you do with it work out sleep read a book play Fortnite, call your mom take judo lessons finally watch all the episodes of shameless a lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time but why time for what if time was unlimited how would you use it the bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour but What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P timesuck After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. 
So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Build on to form his cult. Before digging into those teachings, this feels like a not too disruptive spot to take a mid-show sponsor break. Thanks for listening, Meat Sacks. Hope you liked some of the deals you heard and used our codes and landing pages to save money and let our sponsors know you listen. Now back to the show, picking up with the uh, learning the reorganized, uh, learning about the reorganized Church of Latter-day Saints to understand some more teaching, teachings Lundgren would build on to form his cult. Formerly known as the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known as that in Jeffrey's day, the religious organization now known as Community of Christ regards itself as the true embodiment of the original LDS church organized in 1830 by Joseph Smith. 
Importantly, it regards Joseph Smith III, the eldest surviving son of Smith, to have been his legitimate successor to the church leadership, not Brigham Young. Let's go back to 1844. The death of prophet and leader Joseph Smith that year left a fledgling religious group with a a political power struggle, a, a power vacuum. Since the church's inception in 1830, Joseph Smith had been telling Mormons to follow him to Zion, this mythical land where they would be able to flourish and restore the kingdom of God. But he was having a hard time setting up that kingdom. He kept getting kicked out of all the places where Zion was supposed to be, like Independence, Missouri. In 1844, Smith announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States, although he did not have nearly enough appeal to win the very idea of Smith as president really got a lot of people nervous and increased anti-LDS sentiment. Meanwhile, a group of dissenting Latter-day Saints began publishing a newspaper that was highly critical of the practice of polygamy and of Smith's leadership. Smith had the press destroyed. The ensuing threat of violence prompted Smith to call on a militia in the town of Nauvoo, Illinois. He was charged with treason and conspiracy by Illinois authorities, imprisoned with his brother Hiram in the Carthage City Jail. And then on June 27, 1844, an angry mob stormed in and murdered the brothers. And this immediately created that power vacuum. Smith had been guiding Mormons again to Zion for a long time, according to his own revelations about where Zion was. But now that he was dead, where were the Mormons? Where were the Mormons to go? Who would take them where they needed to go? The answer for the mainstream LDS church was Brigham Young, an early convert to Mormonism. Brigham had come across the Book of Mormon shortly after its 1830 publication, when a missionary sold a copy to his brother. He studied Smith's teachings for two years before being baptized in the Mormon faith in April of 1832 and 1833. After the death of his wife, he followed Joseph Smith's call for church members to gather in Kirtland, Ohio, where much of our story will take place today, arriving there with his two children in September of 1833. After Smith's death, Brigham Young proposed that the so-called Quorum of the Twelve Apostles run the church along with him and most of the Mormons who lived in Nauvoo, Illinois, agreed with him. The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is the second highest leadership body of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The first presidency being the highest, Young would be the first president. Young planned for a mass migration from Illinois to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake, where he hoped Mormons could be free from the persecution that had already driven them from Ohio uh, and, and Missouri. But some Mormons did not like this plan. Joseph Smith's widow, Emma Smith, chose to remain behind with her three children instead of following him to Utah. And other Mormons, believing that the next leader of the church needed to be one of Smith's descendants, stayed behind with her. And the so-called splinter group would eventually become the new organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They would hold their first conference in June of 1852. Then the RLDS church would officially form in 1860 when Joseph Smith III, oldest of Emma's three sons, agreed to become head of this new church. And he would hold this position for 54 years. This Joseph Smith said in his inaugural address to the reorganization's general conference that while he respected those who had gone to Utah, he thought they were being misled and were controlled by an authoritarian system which held them, if not against their wills, at least in ignorance of other more righteous possibilities. The RLDS claimed claimed the same date as the LDS church for its formal organization, April 6, 1830. Both will claim to be the OG LDS church. Through the community of, uh, or though the community of Christ shares a lot of tenets of mainstream Mormon theology, of course it does since it, you know, started out at the same time, it also has important differences from the LDS church. The first biggest, most obvious difference, acceptance of Brigham Young's teachings. This is important to understand how Jeffrey's able to pull off his shit. In 1834, Joseph Smith declared that God would someday raise up a leader like Moses who would redeem Zion. And what does it mean to redeem Zion? Well, it took me a lot longer 
that I wanted it to, to figure that shit out. Holy hell, there was a lot of uh, theology in Mormonism. It is the building of a new Jerusalem, the building of a holy city where Christ will come down to reign personally and the curse of Adam will be lifted. Millennium will start in this city. Uh, and this concept of Mormonism means for a thousand years, there will be a period of peace and righteousness in this great land. During this time, Jesus will personally reign on the earth. Satan will be bound, have no power over the people in Zion due to their righteousness. For a thousand years, mostly in the earlier years, Zion missionaries will spread the good word to the rest of the world. Then after the thousand years, Satan will kick off a final, you know, fucking big battle with, you know, killer Christ, second coming stuff. And in Doctrine and Covenants, Smith's Revelations, the Lord said that Zion must be redeemed by his power. And he called on the saints to use their power even to armed conflict and loss of life if necessary to redeem Zion. And again, that's important to understand what Jeffrey will do, right? Create Zion through bloodshed or what he will try to do. Uh, Back to the death of Joseph Smith now. Well, many Utah saints felt that Brigham Young fulfilled a Joseph Smith prophecy about a leader that would rise up to redeem Zion. Young, they argued, had successfully led the saints out of bondage in Missouri into the new promised land of Utah, where he had redeemed Zion. He had given them a holy land, but such talk was heresy to the saints in uh, Missouri. They considered Young to be a false prophet. Zion was supposed to be built in independence that Joseph Smith had intended, never Salt Lake City. For the the RD, oh my God, for the RLDS. It's always the four letter acronyms. I'm always like, ah, they don't roll off the tongue the same way as the three letter ones. But uh, Smith's 1834 promise of a new Zion had still not been fulfilled. They were still waiting. They are still waiting for God to send them this important prophet who will redeem Zion for them. And Jeffrey Lundgren will declare himself to be that very prophet, right? RLDS teachings put the cult leader ball on the tee and he took a swing. Not the first to do so, not the last. There are other differences that the early RLDS church has with mainstream Mormonism. During the 19th century, the LDS church strongly emphasized the practice of plural marriage as a requirement for exaltation. Although this requirement was officially abolished in 1890 as a condition for Utah statehood, funny how God's vision for his chosen people sometimes is thwarted, changed by American earthly politics, uh, it was and is still taught that polygamy will be practiced in the hereafter. I don't think I mentioned that in the original Mormonism suck, and I'm not sure that a lot of Mormons even know this, but plural marriage remains very much a part of Mormon doctrine, enshrined in scripture, practiced at least through so-called sealings in his temples. Many members believe polygamy will be reinstituted in the afterlife. And even the late Latter-day Saint Apostle Bruce R. McConkie, part of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles from 1972 to 1985, wrote that this holy practice will resume after Jesus Christ's second coming. Uh, Polygamy also exists in the here and now. In a sense, divorced or widowed men can be sealed, aka married for eternity, in Latter-day Saint temples to multiple wives. But women generally can only be sealed to one husband. Bummer ladies. If a man gets a divorce, he can be sealed again to another wife without canceling the first sealing while women are required to get that cancellation. As written in a 2019 Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake City Tribune article, one elderly gentleman was widowed and sealed twice. And while in his 70s and considering a third wife, declared he would only court a woman who was already sealed to her first husband. It was a question he posed on all first dates with prospective mates. Because as the man said at the time, two wives on the other side are enough. (laughs) For fuck's sake. The strangest ways we overly complicate our lives. There is something really funny about getting divorced and forgetting to cancel, aka unseal that first marriage, then getting married again, uh, then dying, 
and finding out that you're stuck with the woman you couldn't handle being married to for decades in this life now for eternity. You know, just, oh, oh my Lord. Oh, thank you, oh wonderful God for granting me immortality. And I get my own solar system. How wonderful, how blessed. Oh, and there's my wife, Cindy. Oh, how I've missed her, Lord. This is amazing. I'm so filled with joy. And Karen, Karen, what are you doing here? Oh, no, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. And heaven quickly becomes hell. Uh, the RLDS end of our hand has always denounced polygamy, although it does not deny that it was practiced in the church's early years. Well, eventually, Jeffrey Lundgren will conveniently say that, you know, he has some new revelations, you know, talking about how God does want polygamy, but that's next week. Uh, while both Mormonism and RLDS claim God ordained the organization as the true restoration of fallen Christianity, the LDS church is the one of the two to continue to insist that it alone represents the only true church, more closely emulating primitive Christianity. The RLDS will drop this notion in the 80s as it liberalizes. Lundgren will be able to play with this. Other liberalizing efforts included then included, ah, have included uh, then-President Wallace B. Smith's decree in 1984, which let women become priests, something Jeffrey uh, strongly opposed, and he used this opposition to galvanize his small group of conservative RLDS members. Right? Women cannot lead in a male-dominated cult. Now, when the leader has polygamous aspirations, come on, everybody. A dude gets to lead, women get to get fucked. That's cult shit 101. God's chosen prophet is to spread God's love to the hottest female members through his hot, hard father, daddy, God dick covered in prophecies. As these uh, RLDS members gathered to discuss what the church they wanted to attend would look like, Lundgren saw an opportunity to gain the following he thought he deserved, becoming a sort of spokesman for the conservative RLDS movement in his temple. This would even bring him into direct conflict with RLDS leadership like Dale Luffman, an administrator in Kirtland, who found himself going head-to-head with a group of people who increasingly looked less like a Sunday school scripture study group and more like a cult. And before long, the group's opposition to Dale would crystallize into a plan to take over the Kirtland Temple by force. After which, the temple was to physically rise up to heaven. As prophesied, all of the group members would get to meet God. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Zion has been redeemed. The millennium has begun. And I think that's all you need to know about the RLDS and Mormonism to gain a full understanding, a good understanding, I guess, of how Jeffrey was able to recruit who he recruited. So now, well, let's fucking go. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Jeffrey Don Lundgren will be born May 3rd, 1950 in Independence, Missouri. Uh, later on, he'll consider May 3rd as a special day. Not just his birthday, the birthday of some mere mortal. No, 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 much more than that. He will prophesy that it'll mark the return of God, the coming of the apocalypse, the beginning of a spiritual war. Ah, shit! But not yet. Jeffrey was the older of two sons born to Donald and Lois Lundgren. Donnie and Lois, power names for parents of a new prophet of God. Imagine uh, instead of Mother Mary, if it was Mother Lois. <laughs> Mother Lois, not, not quite the same ring to it. No alliteration, a little softer sounding at the end, weird. Jeffrey came from a well-pedigreed RLDS family. Uh, everyone in the family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, all big RLDS people. Uh, Lois's parents, Alva and Maud Gadbury, helped found uh, two RLDS congregations in Independence. Of course, they did Alva and Maud. How could they not do so much with these powerful names? Lois and Maud in one family? Alva and Donnie? 
Uh, Alva was a pastor at both. Maude ran the Sunday school programs. Then on the Lundgren side, it was Donald's, uh, Donnie's mother, Mabel, who was the religious stalwart. Oh, fuck yeah. Lois, Maude, and Mabel. Sounds like a, a trio of women the Golden Girls would have met in some episode set on a cruise ship. Mabel had converted from the Lutheran faith as a young mom and had seen to it that her kids rarely missed an RLDS service. Mabel later taught Sunday school for 30 years at the Slover Park, RLDS Congregation on Independence, one of the more prestigious congregations in town. Everyone called her Grandma Lundy. Adorable. Good old, good old Granny Lundy. Bet she always had some hard candy nearby. At least a few root beer barrels, butterscotches in her purse. Maybe some of that good shit. The strawberry hard candies with the soft, juicy centers. Strawberry bonbons. I guess that's what they're actually called, even though I've never heard them called that. Uh, Donnie and Lois had met at church, then married in 1948. Don rose to the rank of elder, high-ranking post in an RLDS congregation. On most Sundays, he and Lois could be found sitting and holding hands in the sanctuary. Adorable. Don spent his early years in rural South Dakota, where he'd learned to hunt and fish, and where also, according to a younger sister, Mary Bennett, Don had been a terror and a bully. Don had started a career as a construction worker, was put in charge of a work crew that installed microwave towers for a telephone company. I'd never heard him called that, but that's what the source said. Uh, by, by the early 60s, he'd been earning $100 a day when the average salary in the nation was $100 a week. Fucking Donnie Warbucks, Donnie Dollars, Donnie Ducats. Donnie would make enough to later put up $5,000 to help his brother-in-law, George Gadbury, uh, keep his formal wear rental shop open. Eventually, he, he would buy out his brother-in-law put Jeffrey to work there. Had the store generating a good profit for a little while, not while Jeffrey was working there. As an adult, uh, like he was as a kid, Donnie was still seen as a tough guy, a man's man who spoke his mind. He served in the Navy, was a staunch patriot who detested slackers. I'm sure he fucking hated free-loving hippies, damn long hairs, eroding the moral fabric of this great nation. Donnie would allegedly tell anyone who asked him that no one had given him anything. He'd earned his own way, all by himself. One of those guys. I did it all myself. I get the sentiment. I really do. But do any of us literally do it all ourselves? No, no, we don't. Not ever. Busting your ass sure increases the odds of success. Hell yeah. As does coming up with a good plan, sticking to it, mental fortitude, perseverance, all good and important qualities, but still someone has to hire you or buy your shit or give you a loan, watch your kids while you work, something. But again, I get the sentiment. Respect, Donnie. Respect. But also that attitude can really read as arrogant. Maybe unsurprisingly, neither Donnie nor Lois were very popular among other churchgoers. Donnie was regarded as too opinionated, as arrogant. Lois was seen by many as too flashy. We, we got ourselves a couple of prideful motherfuckers in this congregation. Uh, in every church, you have your show people who see if they can dress better than anyone else, a church member would later explain. You know the type. If someone shows up in a fur coat one week, they have one the next week. That was Lois Lundgren. Appearances were everything to her. Jeffrey would later joke that the reason his dad earned so much money was because of his mom's spending habits. Lois's home was full of oh so many knickknacks. Apparently it looked like a museum. Anyone else picturing a, a shit ton of Hummel figurines? Like the good ones. Apple tree boy and girl. Hungarian girl. School boys and schoolgirls. The rare stuff. Uh, those actually are the names of real expensive, uh, rare Hummels, by the way. Uh, Lois would search area antique stores, bring home their finest pieces. Each room in the house was said to have looked as if it had been arranged to be photographed for display in a magazine. These two sound like a couple of characters. Uh, as kids, Jeffrey and his brother, Corey, who was nearly six years younger, were permitted to sit on the living room sofa only when guests visited. 
All other times, they would sit on a rug on the floor dropped in front of the TV. Don't dirty up the sofa. Come on, for fuck's sake. Did I, did I say a couple of characters? I want to change that to a couple of rigid, fun-hating assholes. Uh, way too concerned with status and what the neighbors think about them. Not letting the kids sit on the living room couch unless guests are over? That's fucking gross. I feel like Jeffrey and Corey spent their childhood walking on eggshells. Uh, Lois's appearance, too, set her apart from other RLDS members. She had chestnut hair, ivory skin, and a curvy figure that other girls envied, according to sources. Even as an older woman, she she bleached her hair blonde, dressed immaculately, and seemed to have a, a youthful sparkle. A walking elder boner maker. Jeffrey would say that his mom did not sparkle at home. Uh, he would say that she was always cold to him. What? The lady who would only let her kids sit on the couch when company was over is cold? Ah, oh, that's crazy talk. Uh, Jeffrey would say that instead of unconditional affection, his parents were only affectionate when he performed well, like after he played a, a good game at school. No hugs for fucking losers in the Lundgren family. Not in Donnie and Lois's house, goddammit. Uh, when Jeffrey played his first basketball game in sixth grade, he scored seven of the team's 11 points. And did that get him a hug after that game? No, it did not. After the game, his mom criticized him because of the ploppy noise that his feet made when he ran up and down the court. She was apparently so embarrassed, she made him practice running on his toes in the kitchen for weeks. How pathetic. And of course I'm referring to Jeffrey. Pick up those dumb feet, you little plop ploppity dipshit. Uh, maybe because of his parents, Jeffrey wasn't all that popular in school. He only had one close friend, Sarah Stotts, who lived down the street, who Jeffrey had met in preschool. Both Jeffrey and Sarah were quiet kids. Uh, that didn't stop Jeffrey from becoming an excellent shortstop on the baseball team at William Christian High School in Independence. He lifted weights almost every day. By his senior year, he could allegedly throw a pitch close to 100 miles an hour. But he was awkward. Other students still considered him socially off. Girls, not interested. Uh, he did go to senior prom, but not with anyone romantic. He asked his good friend Sarah to be on the, be his date. She accepted, platonically. In Jeffrey's 1968 high school yearbook picture, he will stand out among the photos of smiling boys in t-shirts, you know, band t-shirts and shit with long hair. Jeffrey had a 50s buzz cut. He dressed in a crisp white shirt, narrow tie and jacket, very stiff, not smiling. Donnie and Lois not raising some happy idiot. Some smiling dipshit, all joyful for no good reason. Backing up to the year after Jeffrey was born now, Alice Keeler, the future Mrs. Lundgren, born January 21st, 1951, also in Independence, Missouri, oldest of four kids. Her parents had both moved to Independence because of the RLDS's church, uh, RLDS's, RLDS churches, there we go, belief that independence would be where Jesus Christ will return and, uh, you know, build Zion, as Joseph Smith once preached, a, a perfect city of peace and beauty. And look, nothing against Independence, Missouri. It looks like a fine place to live. I've never spent time there, only driven through it. But Zion, paradise, on the outskirts of Kansas City. I doubt it. I love Kansas City. Cool city, but especially scenic? No. Uh, humid as fuck in the summer, freezing balls in the winter. Great football team. Great rock station with the legendary Johnny Dare. Love that beautiful weirdo. Cool shopping, good restaurants, nice bars, museums, but not paradise. Alice's father, Ralph Keeler, had met her mother, Donna, at an RLDS church service shortly after World War II. They married in 1947. He went to work as a welder. She stayed at home and raised the four kids. Uh, until she was 13, Alice grew up in relative comfort. Even though her dad didn't earn a huge salary, but both Ralph and Donna put the kids' needs first, buying new clothes, new shoes, giving them spending money. But that would change for Alice in 1964. 
One morning, Ralph woke up with a pain in his leg. By nighttime, he had lost all feeling in it. The next day, doctors diagnosed him with having multiple sclerosis. How terrifying. It was soon difficult for him to walk. He was put on disability. And Donna, who had never finished high school, is now forced to work. She's hired as a cook at an all-night cafe, works from 7 in the morning to 7 at night, leaving Alice to run the house. Uh, now she's in charge of you know, taking care of her sister, uh, sisters, Susan and Terry, who were 11 and 7, and her two-year-old brother, Charles. Susan and Terry were tomboys who often made fun of Tricky and Prissy Alice. That's interesting. Tricky and Prissy. To escape from her family, Alice would turn to the church. She'd officially been baptized at age five by none other than Carlos Crozen, Jeffrey Lundgren's uncle. As a teenager, she felt she truly started to understand her religion. Rarely missed a service, participated in every youth activity and held her beliefs with conviction. And all of that faith will really come back to fuck over her entire life. Not kidding. It would be a Friday in the spring of 1969 when she finally met Jeffrey Lundgren, the man she would soon come to think of as her knight in shining armor, the man she should have ran from, literally, if need be. Alice was a senior in high school writing a paper about the origins of the Book of Mormon, wanting to use the library at the Central Missouri State University, uh, you know, not the, at Central uh, Missouri, which was 40 minutes away from Independence in Warrensburg. She cut a ride to campus with her youth minister. She finished up at the library earlier than she expected, decided to go across campus to a two-story house that had been converted by the RLDS into a student union. Alice spotted a friend who then introduced Alice to her friends, including a young man in a neatly pressed white short sleeve shirt with pinstripes. His shirt matched his blue corduroy slacks. He was wearing brown pennies loafers with no socks. He looked sort of ridiculous to Alice, but she was still charmed by the future cult leader. Can't be a cult leader and not be mysteriously appealing to at least a few people. They only talked for a few minutes. Alice returned home shortly after taking to, uh, talking to him, graduated, spent a week at a church-run summer camp, but she didn't forget Jeffrey. Uh, one of the girls uh, there had just finished her freshman year at CMSU and had gone out on a date with Jeffrey. She heard about it. Alice asked her about him, and the girl confided, he tried to get me drunk and take advantage of me. Alice then punched that lying bitch in the mouth. Repent, harlot. How dare thou speak ill of the new prophet of God? No, he wasn't a prophet yet. Uh, so she, of course, never said that. Alice was troubled. She couldn't believe that the friendly boy she met would be so pushy, especially since he was RLDS, just like her, you know, supposedly holding out for marriage. Alice sounds pretty sheltered. Just, what? A young man was pushy about sex with a young woman? What? But what about his relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus? Uh, during evening vespers, aka evening prayers at the camp, Alice decided to ask God whom she would eventually marry. At the bonfire, she prayed silently with the other campers. After several minutes of silence, one of the adult counselors stood up and began to prophesy. How fun. One by one, the counselor called out each camper's name. He was being moved by the spirit or just being weird and dramatic to prove he fit in and belonged and he knew doing this would be appreciated by other church members. And he would give them messages from God. The man proclaimed, Unto my sister Alice, thus saith the spirit. I have seen your tears and I have heard your prayers and I will never leave you comfortless. I will direct your path and I will hold your life in the palm of my hand for there I have engraven you. Oh, okay, cool story, bro. How very helpful and not at all vague and meaningless. Uh, though the guy didn't mention anything specific, Alice thought he must have been talking about her future husband or more specifically that God was telling her about her future husband. Okay, I'm reading into this stuff, projecting. On the final day of camp, the group held a Sunday morning testimonial service, another opportunity for people to channel God's messages. The campers were told that the fellowship they had, they had created had been acceptable in God's eyes and that it was, quote, pleasing unto him. 
though I'm glad God could find time to let them know that. Dear Lord, I'm sure you're busy saving starving children in Africa and stuff, but if you could just... No, 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 not, not busy at all, Braxton. Nah, keeping uh, kids from starving, <laughs> it's depressing. Ugh. Uh, a lot of work. I prefer to lounge around and listen to people worship me. I love it. I love to hear about how much y'all love and fear me. Really gets my dick hard, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Don't stop. Keep telling daddy how great he is, and I'll tell you I'm so pleased. Uh, their stakes patriarch, a member of the RLDS priesthood, called to give patriarchal blessings to people, also said that their generation was the one that would see the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, and they would be instruments in his hands. Oh, it's always the current generation, always the one coming up. You guys, you're the special one. You're the best. Uh, oh, and a stake uh, is an administrative unit composed of multiple uh, RLDS congregations, same as LDS. And then the patriarch addressed Alice directly, saying, And unto you, my daughter Alice, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> I like that they have to add, thus saith, like, <laughs> like, I've said this before. I think I said this in the Mormon one. But I love how they still talk in King James. Like, that's just how God talks. Like, the Bible wasn't originally written that way. That was like a medieval translation that ended up sounding that way because that's how some people talked at that time. It's just weird that like for a lot of these um, religions, like they think that God is just stuck in like the fucking, you know, <laughs> middle ages or something. Thus saith the Lord, thou and thee shall have thy. Okay. But he says, uh, you shall have the answer to your prayers. You shall marry a companion whom I have prepared to bring forth my kingdom. And he shall be great in the eyes of these people and shall do much good unto the children of men. For I have prepared him to bring forth a marvelous work and wonder. Alice is amazed by this. She hadn't told anyone about her prayers for her husband, uh, but thought that the man's words meant that God had been paying attention. Give me a fucking break. Every girl at this camp is praying for a husband, right? They've been, they've been bred. They've been pressured for that their whole lives, right? It's all about like the RLDS faith, like for young women, it's all about get married, get married, get married, get married. Have kids, have kids, have kids. What? God knew that I, a woman about to enter college, wants a husband more than anything? Huh, crazy. So then a few weeks after summer camp ended, Alice was asleep in her bedroom at night and she felt something pressing down upon her. She was being crushed by what she would later describe as an evil presence. The weight seemed to hold her down endlessly until she started to pray. When she called out Jesus' name, the weight suddenly lifted. What's going on here? Sleep paralysis? Demonic presence? Jeffrey trying to Cleveland steamer. That, uh, that last thing will make sense later. Uh, she would describe her experience the following Sunday at the RLDS church in Odessa. Members congratulated her afterwards, saying that she was clearly destined to do great things for the church. Rejoice! Hail Alice! Uh, what an amazing future definitely awaits her. If it doesn't, if her life ends up becoming complete and total shit, which it will, it's almost like this prophecy mumbo-jumbo doesn't mean shit. Alice would enroll at Central Missouri State University in nearby Warrensburg the fall of 1969. Go Mules and Jennies. They have different mascot names for each gender. Uh, here in Warrensburg, one of God's most important cities, clearly, she would re-meet the boy she had met months before, Jeffrey Don Lundgren. He was playing cards with his best friend, Keith Johnson, at the RLDS Student uh, Union, uh, Student Lounge, whatever you want to call it. Jeffrey didn't seem to remember her, but Keith invited Alice to join their card game. Afterwards, they all went to an ice cream parlor. How wholesome. Keith then said that he was having a picnic at his parents' farm that weekend. He had a date, but you know, Jeffrey doesn't. Wink, wink. Jeffrey asked Alice if she wants to go. Alice asked if there's going to be anyone else there. Keith said that, oh yeah, eight or nine couples are going to be gone. And since that seems safe, Alice agreed. But then, 
while all of these other couples mysteriously drop out, leaving only Keith and his date and Alice and Jeffrey. And Alice grew incredibly anxious. What would Jeffrey try? Would he try to finger her? She'd heard about finger blasters. Her parents had warned her. Missouri was rife with dirty dude finger blasters back in the late 60s, early 70s. Thank God she had worn six pairs of panties that day and, and fortified her genitals with saran wrap. There would be no finger blasting. That's a sham of a picnic. Now she was fine. Alice and Jeffrey got to talking, finding out that their upbringings were uh, very different. Alice had grown up poor. Jeffrey, comparatively, had grown up with uh, every luxury available to him. You know, now that his parents were rich, they weren't, but, you know, firmly middle class, maybe upper middle class. Alice will later remember being a little surprised by one of Jeffrey's comments when he said, my mother isn't going to like your name. <laughs> She'll think it's much too plain. Fuck, that's a, that's a weird thing to say to someone on a first date. A really fucking dumb thing to say. Even if, even if you know it's true, why would you ever say that? Quick, quick relationship advice in the middle of the suck. If you're going on a date, don't say negative shit about the other date on any level. Oh, so your name's uh, Alice? <laughs> Mom's going to hate that. What are you doing, you fucking weirdo? <laughs> Even though she had heard the, the that uh, troubling story about him before, you know, about the pressuring girls to, uh, uh, you know, uh, be sexually promiscuous, get him drunk. To Alice's relief, Jeffrey doesn't even try to kiss her. Not at the picnic. The four teens then drive back to campus. Jeffrey escorts Alice back to her women-only dorm. At that point, he does ask if he can kiss her goodnight. And Alice accepts. And now so much future horror will start, right? Under the guise of him being a, a gentleman. Now, now that now from this point forward, oh boy, I was loving this. Shortly after Jeffrey left, Alice's hall phone rang. It was Jeffrey asking what time she was getting up in the morning <laughs> because he wanted to walk her to every single one of her classes the following day. Holy shit. We have our first major red flag. Maybe second after Alice's friend warned her about Jeffrey. But this is big. They have gone out on one date. This is way too fast. He almost seems very unstable or something. Well, true to his word, Jeffrey is waiting for her the next morning. Now Alice is starting to think that Jeffrey might be the answer to what the RLDS had taught her her entire life, that the church was waiting for a prophet to lead them to the new promised land, found the new Zion. She's already thinking this. She's, she's crazy too. Right? There was that guy at camp who told her, you know, that her generation would establish Zion. There was going to be this guy for her, you know, oof. Well, so she wonders, you know, is Jeffrey going to be this prophet? If not, at least he seems like a good boyfriend. So Jeffrey now sends long stem roses to Alice every single day during the first week they date, waits outside every morning to carry her books. If Alice needs to go to the library, the school cafeteria, the gymnasium, anywhere, he escorts her. Everything he does revolves around Alice. Everything. Smothered much? Even after Alice had gone into the dormitory at night, he will call, give her advice on what she should wear the next day before abruptly telling her that she ought to go to bed. Whoa. If one of my kids dated someone who started doing this kind of controlling shit, especially that early on, I might just have to terrify them into breaking up with my kid. Or maybe make them disappear. This is a huge fucking red flag, right? What a controlling, possessive nut job. Someone starts telling you what to wear, when to go to bed. Maybe tell them to go get fucked. Maybe don't pick up the phone when they call anymore. Well, Alice would pick up the phone. Uh, she would take these calls. Afterwards, she would hang up. She would put the outfit that he wanted, get it ready for the next morning, then go to bed. The next morning, he would be waiting there with a the compliment. If she wore that, a few times she didn't. 
and he seemed angry and disappointed. Run, Alice, run. Nothing ever comes from an insecure, jealous, controlling piece of shit. And more than once, uh, she now catches him. And this is early on. This is week one of the relationship. More than once, she catches him watching her through the window while she's in class. That is so fucking creepy. Alice, though, she thought this meant he was devoted. She liked the attention. Alice's parents did not do a good job talking to her about healthy relationship boundaries. Someone acts like this with Kyler Monroe, right? I will be mocking that creep, making sure my kids understand how insane that is. Then just one week after dating, he asked her to marry him. This guy is just a walking collection of red flags. 1969, women could get married at age 18 without parental consent in Missouri, but men, random, had to be 21. Jeffrey's 19. Uh, He knows that his parents will not approve of Alice, who is poor, doesn't have status in the church. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, the proposal he gave then was not meant to be accepted. Maybe he just wanted, uh, some other things to happen because soon after he proposed, he begins to pressure her for sex, right? Her friend was right. And not even finger blasting. He's jumping straight to fourth base and she doesn't turn him down. Now all Jeffrey wants to do is have sex, right? Week two. It was contrary to everything Alice had been brought up to believe, but for her doing this was a sign that, you know, uh, she loved him and that he loved her back. So they're, you know, fucking constantly. Uh, and, and whatever, but it's just the way this is all set up. I don't like a month or so later th- during Thanksgiving break, Alice and Jeffrey go to visit Jeffrey's parents in independence. Jeffrey tells her before they go that there is no way his parents are going to like her and that they're going to think that she wanted to marry him for his money. And again, more weird shit with Jeffrey. Why would you say that? Like giving her a heads up about his parents. Okay. That's nice. If you do it in the right way, telling, telling her that there's no way they're going to like her. That's just cruel. During the meal, nervous as shit, Alice hardly says anything, of course. She thinks Don and Lois are both gracious and friendly, but she's too scared to talk to them now. Afterwards, she and Jeffrey uh, go to see the movie Romeo and Juliet. And uh, apparently she spent most of the time at the theater throwing up in the bathroom. Her nerves are shot. Back at school after the break, Alice is surprised when a friend tells her to tell Jeffrey to study for his final. And this friend says, you know, he's never been to class. And Alice is shocked. She confronts Jeffrey the next day. He says, yeah, no, he's, he's been going to class. Just no one sees him. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, both of their grades uh, are dropping. Jeffrey's grades drop a lot more than Alice's. Uh, Jeffrey fails literally every class that semester. Not even a single D. And he's told he cannot come back in the spring. Well, panicked, Alice now thinks that they need to get married right now. What? This dipshit flunks out of all of his classes, all of them. <laughs> his very first semester, the easiest semester oftentimes. Course load wise, and, and, and she thinks, we need to get married. I need to lock this champion up now. Some people are truly their own worst enemies. Uh, the prospect of spending time away from each other is terrifying for Alice, especially since sex had become a major part of the relationship. So major that Alice thinks he's going to lose interest in her without it. And he has already lost some interest. At home, Jeffrey is confessing his love for his old friend, Sarah, telling her that Alice has been pressuring him to get her pregnant because she has a bad home life and needs to escape. Sarah, having found more confidence in college, turns him down. So now Jeffrey returns to his consolation prize. This young relationship keeps getting more and more sad and dysfunctional. A few weeks after the spring semester starts at CMSU, Jeffrey and Alice drive to Odessa to talk to her parents now. They thought of a way to try and force Jeffrey's parents to give marital consent. This is how Alice's mom, Donna Keebler, remembers what happened. She said, we were sitting around the kitchen table when Alice and Jeffrey asked us if we would tell Jeff's parents that Alice was pregnant. I immediately asked her if she was, and Alice said no. But they wanted us to lie to Don and Lois so they would have to agree to the marriage. Well, Donna said, no, we're not going to do that. 
Then a month later, Alice uh, and Jeffrey return to talk to Donna and Ralph. And this time, Alice says, no one's going to have to lie because she is pregnant. These fucking idiots literally getting pregnant just so they can get married. This was all so doomed from the start. Jeffrey called his parents from the Keebler's kitchen, broke the news. Don and Lois are furious. Jeffrey asked Don and Ralph if they will go with him, you know, uh, and Alice to face his parents. And they agree. And this meeting is, is ugly, to say the least. At the Lundgren house, Don rips into Jeffrey, right, in front of everyone, saying that he had embarrassed the entire family and literally ruined the Lundgren name. Oh, boy. He said that he and Lois could barely show their faces at church now. All right, so go to a new church if you're going to be such a fucking baby about it, Donnie. Uh, Lois claimed that Alice had trapped Jeffrey, even called Alice a whore in front of her parents. Lois, class act. Donna came to her daughter's defense. As the fighting came to a head, Jeffrey packed a few things and then left with Alice and her parents. Following Monday morning, Jeffrey, Alice, and Donna drive to Independence Courthouse to an Independence Courthouse to get a marriage license. So in all that mess, the Lundgrens do accept that they're going to get married. Like it's just less shameful. Still during the spring semester on May 5th, 1970, Alice and Jeffrey do get married at the RLDS church in Odessa. Odessa is in between Warrensburg and Independence. None of Jeffrey's family members show up. Zero. Afterwards, using the... <laughs> Sorry, I forgot about this part uh, for a second. God, this fucking killed me when I came across it the first time. After this, using $600 that Donna and Ralph gave uh, them for, the, for a honeymoon, Jeffrey takes Alice on a honeymoon <laughs> to Six Flags in Arlington, Texas. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Taking your pregnant young bride to a roller coaster park. That, that sounds like the kind of idea hats from the mind of a dude who literally flunked every single class he took in college and also stared at his new girlfriend while she was taking classes from outside of the window like a fucking creep. Alice is feeling morning sickness and understandably doesn't want to ride any roller coasters. Instead of throwing calling the thing off, no, they still go. Jeffrey just leaves her in the hotel room while he goes and enjoys the park by himself. What a piece of shit, right? Yet another overtly bad sign with this guy. One of so many, one of so many more to come. <laughs> when they get back from their honeymoon, I could not stop laughing when I first learned about this honeymoon. Uh, they had no car, no money, no job, no place to live. These two are dumb as a pile of bricks. They solved the last problem by staying with Don and Ralph in Odessa, who must have been overjoyed. And now Jeffrey starts worrying about being drafted. I bet Don and Ralph prayed that he would be drafted. Maybe that he'd be killed in action. By January of 1970, some 40,000 Americans had already been killed in Vietnam. 10,000 of them had died during 1969 alone. Uh, to try and avoid the war, Jeffrey decides to enlist in the Navy under a delayed entry program that did not require him to report until late 1970. After months off of, of mooching off of his new wife's family like the complete fucking parasitical loser he was, Jeffrey reports for Navy training in San Diego, California, November 8th, 1970. Uh, only Alice is sad to see him go. <laughs> the rest of the family uh, had long grown sick of the man who lived with them, yet never held a steady job and never chipped in, chipped in for anything, not even gas or groceries. The story's so good. Three weeks after he left, Alice gives birth to Damon Paul Lundgren. She called Jeffrey, told him they ha that he had a son. Mostly, uh, Alice's little sisters, Terry and Sue, will end up taking care of the baby because Alice will claim that she's too tired. And then she'll tell her mom, who works uh, overnight shifts now, that she was the one who'd been up all night with the baby. So then Donna, her mom, will take care of the baby during the day. What a pair. Jeffrey and Alice, champions both. Uh, Jeffrey comes back to Odessa just in time for Valentine's Day, arriving the day before, February 13th, 1971. And he tells Alice two things. One, he's been studying scripture a lot more. Two, his father has agreed to bless Damon, which is a big event. 
in the Mormon faith. His parents had already chosen a time, date, and place for the ceremony. The next weekend, Jeffrey and Alice take Damon to meet his grandparents. Lois and Don are kind to the baby, ignore her entirely. Cool. What humble, faithful servants of the Lord. Uh, The blessing ceremony takes place the following Sunday at the Slover Park Congregation. And afterwards, Alice, Jeffrey, and Damon, they go to Don and Lois's for a party. And much to Alice's surprise, now her mother-in-law, Lois, throws her arms around her and gives her a big old hug. Huh. All the anger and hatred she had felt towards Alice had melted away during Don's blessing of Damon, she explained. Alice was now truly family, and Lois began introducing Alice to her friends as her new daughter. Okay, Lois, I guess I gotta give you some credit here. Good on you for bearing the hatchet in your own weird way. Confused but happy to finally have some acceptance, Alice now agrees to move to California with Damon to support Jeffrey. Jeffrey had been assigned to work as an electrical repairman on the USS Speary, a uh, supply delivery and repair ship that served submarines. But it wasn't scheduled to leave San Diego Harbor for several months, so he was temporarily assigned to work as a lifeguard at a base swimming pool. Right? The fucking Jeffrey is crushing it. Uh, They recognize his greatness, and they put him in one of the most important positions you can get, base swimming pool lifeguard. I guess somebody has to do it. Uh, Even though Jeffrey and Alice now regularly spend long, happy days by the pool, their marriage is struggling. Jeffrey is not what you would call a budgeter. He's blowing his entire Navy paycheck every time he gets it, forcing the couple to call both sets of parents every month, asking them for more money. And because of the grandchild, they get it. The grandparents enable this fucking walking turd to just be an irresponsible dipshit. Uh, Sex is a problem too. All Jeffrey wanted as before was sex, but the sex did not involve Alice's pleasure, like at all, all about him. Uh, More on Jeffrey's uh, very specific sexual taste later. Oh boy. In the spring of 72, Jeffrey is now transferred to the USS Shelton, a battle-tested Korean war destroyer with a crew of 275 men and two uh, twin five-inch guns. And on May 30th, Jeffrey's told that the ship is heading to Vietnam. Uh-oh. His stateside lifeguard duties are over. On June 13th, Jeffrey kisses Alice and Damon goodbye. 27 days later, the USS Shelton arrives off the coast of Vietnam. On the ship, Jeffrey will later say he spent all his free time reading the Book of Mormon, One verse in particular interested him, verse 65 in the second book of Nephi, which said, for the spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jeffrey was intrigued by this idea of God, who always seemed to intervene in others' lives like Alice's, but not his. Hmm, when would he get his intervention? On October 15th, 1972, the USS Shelton comes under attack. All three shots missed the ship. Four days later, enemy artillery began again. For 35 minutes, enemy guns exchanged fire with the USS Sheldon and a nearby cruiser, the USS Providence. The two U.S. ships fired more than 120 rounds at the enemy. But neither U.S. ship is hit. Same thing would happen in December, when more than 190 shots are fired at the Sheldon, but none hit. Two days after that battle, more than 700 shots are fired at the USS Sheldon by a group of shore guns. Despite the repeated attacks, not a single round hits the ship, and the captain will write in his notes that it was a miracle. Can you see where this is heading for Jeffrey? The USS Shelton would sail out of the Gulf of Tonkin on December 22nd, making his way home while the crewmen celebrated their good luck. Well, Jeffrey had a different explanation for what happened than luck. He would literally tell his shipments that he was the reason they had not been hit. He was the only saint on the ship, a Latter-day Saint, he said, and God had shown him a sign by protecting them all. And so it fucking begins. Jeffrey's weird-as-fuck beliefs would not stop him from getting recognized for his wartime contributions. When the USS Shelton returned to San Diego, January 13, 73, Jeffrey will receive the National Defense Service Medal, Vietnam Service Medal with one bronze star, and the Combat Action Ribbon. 
than normally. I love that shit. Not with Jeffrey. His ego does not need to be fueled. Uh, the South Vietnamese government also issued him its Republic of Vietnam campaign medal, and he receives a special letter of commendation for the outstanding job he had done keeping electronic equipment aboard the ship in good working order. His evaluations by his superiors showed Jeffrey was an above-average sailor, skilled at his job, and eager to please. Damn it! This dipshit is a hero now. Or at least is being told he is. Uh, when he gets off the ship, Alice is there to meet him with her son. They end up staying at the home of Lu- uh, Louise and Mural Stone. Mural was a chief petty officer assigned to the U.S. Marine Corps Recruit Depot. Uh, Louise had grown up attending the Slover Park congregation and knew Jeffrey and his family. Mural, who sometimes went by his nickname as Sonny, uh, and Louise would not think that the Lundgrens had a very good marriage. Sonny and I both thought that Jeffrey was tremendously rude to Alice, Louise would say later. Jeff would make decisions without consulting her or even telling her about them. He had complete control in all decision-making, and he just expected Alice to accept that. Right there we go. That's the Jeffrey I know, not the decorated sailor, the misogynistic shitface. Alice wasn't allowed to even touch their checkbook, literally not allowed to touch it much less know how much money Jeffrey had in the bank. She cleaned, she cooked, she changed diapers, washed clothes, took care of Damon without complaining. Meanwhile, Jeffrey had begun to work on another ship, the USS Schofield. Uh, Louise would also remember how fixated Jeffrey was not only on his own sex life, but on her and Sonny's sex life. Weird. Wish there were more details regarding why she said that, but there aren't. Is Jeffrey sex obsessed, a future coal eater? Yeah. Uh, by October of 1973, the couples were not speaking much at all. Jeffrey, not a real likable guy to most. He had almost no friends growing up. Everyone he lives with other than Alice and his parents quickly end up hating on him other than some followers he'll get. November 23rd, 1973, Jeffrey's ship leaves San Diego for Pearl Harbor. First stop on an eight-month trip that will take it to the Indian Ocean. Alice and Damon return to Missouri where they move in with Alice's parents and Alice has learned that she is pregnant again. As he had done in Vietnam, Jeffrey spent much of his free time with the Book of Mormon Shipmates later remembered a man who was always studying scripture, didn't curse, shunned coffee, wouldn't smoke, and wrote two or three letters to his wife every day. And if that was some people, I would say good on them. Uh, But fuck Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey will also claim to have a very odd experience during this time. One night, of course, allegedly, Jeffrey said he had gone up onto the deck to lift some weights and exercise. He was all by himself. The night was clear except for one cloud. The cloud, he said... It was weird. It was inky black, darker than the rest of the sky. He noticed that the clouds seemed to be following the ship. As Jeffrey watched it, it suddenly zoomed down and attacked him, taking the shape of a human hand, and it pushed him up against the railing as though it was trying to knock him overboard. So he screamed, my God, save me, uh, deliver me. And within seconds, the cloud disappeared. He was safe. He'll later say that he believed the cloud was Satan. <laughs> and he's trying to keep Jeffrey from fulfilling his God-given destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, no, that sounds like Satan. Not going not gonna to show up to attack as some terrifying demonic beast. No, that's too predictable. Going to show up as a weird cloud. Dark, scary cloud. You know, that's, that's, that's strong, but not strong enough to knock a, a regular dude off of a fucking boat. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Ship returned to San Diego June 5th, 1974. Uh, just a few weeks later, June 24th, Alice gives birth to a baby boy that she and Jeffrey named Jason. A few months later, November 4th, 1974, uh, Jeffrey will be honorably discharged from the Navy, right? Said he had to take care of his family. Off he goes. He and his family now head back to Missouri where they move in with Ralph and Donna. Now Jeffrey decides to go back to school, Central Missouri State University, where he had previously flunked out of, and he wants to become, <laughs> he wants to become a college professor. 
Okay. Uh, he'll be accepted. His education will be funded under the GI Bill. He'll quickly get involved again with the RLDS Student Union, becoming a sort of spokesperson for, for the fundamentalist RLDS students who don't like some changes taking place in the church that the liberal side is favoring. Right? The most heated debates are about women in church. The liberal side wants women to be allowed to become priests. <laughs> Gross. Jeffrey and the other fundamentalists say that only men can be ordained. <laughs> yes, that is God's way. God I know hates puss. That's righteous. Uh, Jeffrey would even start holding meetings for his faction at his apartment. Two of his early attendees were Dennis Patrick and Tanya McLaughlin. Like Jeffrey and Alice, Denia, uh, Dennis and Tanya had a short courtship. Just three weeks had passed between their first date and getting engaged. They would soon become Jeffrey's faithful followers. So obviously they are geniuses. Uh, while still having his meetings, Jeffrey would decide that he wanted to become a priest. Pretty powerful position. In the RLDS, Community of Christ priest, uh, uh, Priesthood, members run local congregations. Unlike most denominations, though, the R- RLDS does not have salaried, professionally trained ministers, or at least didn't when all of this was happening. Sunday services conducted by men from each congregation who have been called by God to serve as priests. These men who work during the week at non-church jobs divvy up the chores each Sunday. They either take turns preaching or choose one of their own to serve as the regular pastor. First step to joining the priesthood is to receive the call. At least two priests have to feel moved by the spirit to recommend a saint as a priesthood candidate. Once two priests recommend a candidate, the district or stake office conducts a discreet background check to make sure the prospective priest is worthy. While this may seem uh, tough to accomplish, in reality, pretty much any dude who comes to church regularly and expresses an interest can become a priest. Uh, Jeffrey decides he's on his way. But though things seem good with Jeffrey's part-time job at the university lab, he's making all A's now, supposedly, according to him. Uh, You know, family is moving out of Alice's parents' house into a new home. Things soon turn dark. One day, Alice will call up her old friend, Louise Stone, in tears. She'll tell Louise that she found out that the family was thousands and thousands in debt, all due to Jeffrey's bullshit, spending money on God knows what behind her back. I'm going to guess, based on what we will learn about Jeffrey later, he spent a lot of it on sex workers, porn, sex toys, etc. Alice will even go to visit Louise, where she and Sonny now live in Norfolk, Virginia, and complain about Jeffrey for hours, until Jeffrey shows up in a brand new Chevy Carlo he had just bought, Louise then watches in amazement uh, while her friend, who had just seemed so miserable, claps her hands with joy. Simply the fact that Jeffrey had bought a new car and come to get her was enough for Alice to forget about him, putting their family into dangerous debt. Jeffrey had financed the car through a credit union that was largely owned by RLDS church members. His dad was on the board, and that's why he got the loan despite a terrible credit rating. And then within a few months, Jeffrey's name appears on a list of delinquent borrowers. He doesn't make his payments. Donnie, who knew nothing about the car loan, is so embarrassed he resigns from the board. Fucking Jeffrey, the bane of Donnie and Louise's existence, or Lois's existence, excuse me. By January of 1977, just two years after Jeffrey's naval discharge, Jeffrey and Alice have accumulated 22,000 in unpaid bills that don't include their $22,500 house mortgage. And then they will be served an eviction notice. And without explanation, at least to Alice, Jeffrey quits school, just a few credits short of graduation. He's back. This is a Jeffrey wanted to hear about this week. Not straight A student has his shit together, Jeffrey. No, complete train wreck of a human being. Preposterously self-destructive, Jeffrey. Uh, Some administrators would later remember that there was a disciplinary dispute. Alice would say that uh, Jeffrey got caught stealing money. Sounds right, considering what he's going to do in the future. And to top it off, the president of the district RLDS office informs Jeffrey he is not going to be ordained as a priest. Not community of Christ, unpaid priest, material, Jeffrey, you diarrhea of a front butt dump. 
Now Jeffrey was so angry that he decided to drop out of the RLDS entirely. And then through some maneuverings with his family, he got a job doing some electrical wiring at the Andrew Drum Institute, commonly called Drum Farm uh, in Independence. Founded in 1930 by Cattleman Andrew Drum as a home for orphan and indigent boys, the institute was designed to be a working farm. Between 50 and 60 boys, aged 6 through 17, would milk cows, 10 livestock, uh, raise crops on some 360 acres. And apparently for a little while, Jeffrey did well there. The director would go on to get Jeffrey a full-time job as a farm manager. The job included use of a cottage where Alice and the kids could live. And then they would even find jobs for their friends, Dennis and Tanya, who would also move to the drum farm. But after less than a year on the farm, Jeffrey suddenly decides to leave. Huh. Others will say it was less of a decision and more of a Jeffrey got fired after being caught stealing again, which sounds exactly right. Now Alice is pregnant with their third child. They're two uh, children, seven and four. Jeffrey tells Alice not to worry. He's found a job now, a new job at Transworld Airlines as part of a pre-flight inspection crew that checks airplanes when they're on the ground at night. He'll leave home uh, night after night, just before seven in the evening, and then uh, never come home at the same time the next morning. And then Alice begins to notice that things are disappearing from the house. A pair of candlesticks, rifle. She asks them, uh, you know, when he's going to get a paycheck from this new airline job. He says, oh yeah, at the end of the month. But then six weeks pass with no paycheck. And now Jeffrey uh, tells her that someone in the accounting department must have made a mistake. Huh. Sensing all is not right. <laughs> One night now when Jeffrey is out, supposedly at work, Alice decides to go looking for paychecks, thinking that he's hiding them from her. Instead, in his desk, he finds hardcore or, you know, she finds hardcore porn magazines and a note from their landlord telling them they're about to be evicted. He just didn't mention any of that. Classic Jeffrey. That's just Jeffrey being Jeffrey right there. And then the next morning, she calls TWA and they tell her that no Jeffrey Lundgren has ever worked for their airline. How the fuck did he think the situation was not going to blow up in his face? What's he been doing? A few days later, Jeffrey uh, will be arrested for writing bad checks. (laughs) He comes home that day. Alice uh, doesn't know how he got released and reassures his wife, everything's going to be fine. Oh, you should have ran when you had the chance, Alice. When he was fucking staring at you through the window of your freshman college class after telling you what to wear, when to go to bed the night before. Now, once again, Alice, Jeffrey, and their kids move in with Ralph and Donna, who are now living in Max Creek, Missouri, arriving with no car, no money, no prospects. June 15th, 1979. God, they must have been so overjoyed to welcome their champion of a son-in-law back into their home. How often did Ralph think about smothering Jeffrey in his sleep? I imagine very often. If he's my son-in-law, oh, gotta be tempting. Jeffrey will uh, once again find a job, this time repairing medical equipment. He is good at always getting a new job, right? He could be a smooth talker when he needed to be, clearly. Not to his parents, though, I notice, right? They're not taking him in over and over again. Uh, But shortly after they move back with Alice's parents, uh, she gives birth to a daughter, Kristen, another kid they can't afford, all not well for the Lundgren family. Jeffrey finds a house to rent for $100 a month, but his first check to the landlord bounces. And then their sexual problems start to ramp up again. Jeffrey will later say that Alice was frigid, wouldn't have sex more than a handful of times a year, but Alice will have a very different story about their sex life. And I hope you're not eating right now, especially not anything soft and brown. Just before Thanksgiving, 1979, Jeffrey took the kids to Donna's, told Alice that they were going to be spending some quality time together, a little, little romance. Uh, at home, Jeffrey tells Alice to go upstairs and take a bath. While she is uh, still in the tub, This is so absurd. Jeffrey walks in naked. He tells her to open the drain, let the water out, but orders her 
You stay in the tub. He then steps into the tub uh, so that he is facing her feet. <laughs> and now, according to Alice, he just suddenly, no warning, doesn't give her a heads up about this, bends down over her and literally shits on her tits. Showbiz. Uh, that's how they do it in Missouri. My bear cat needed some piping hot peanut butter, butter uh, dropped off on those sugar tartars. Alice will claim that, <laughs> that this is when she discovered that Jeffrey was fascinated with his own feces. He allegedly told her that he had been masturbating with his own shit since he was 13. Yeah, you heard that right. He would use his own shit apparently as lube to masturbate. Some of you have gotten angry about my kink shame comments in past episodes, but you know what? Fuck that shit. If, if you use your shit or someone else's shit as lube to masturbate with, I don't think you're a bad person necessarily because of that. I don't even care that you're doing it, but holy fuck is that disturbing to think about. And I do worry about your mental health a lot. I would wager there's a very good chance you have some serious mental problems. I couldn't do it because that is disgusting. I'm pretty sure you can't jerk off and vomit at the same time. It is literally so filthy. <laughs> there's so much bacteria. Ugh. Alice felt that she had no choice but to go along with this uh, and now has shit smeared sex in the bathtub. But she didn't have a choice. She's rationalizing her part in all of this, right? She absolutely had a choice. She actually could have left him, right? Live back at home with her parents without him. But she doesn't want to face reality and accept the position she has put herself in with this maniac, right? Uh, who vigorously waved around a lot of red flags within their first 24 hours of, of meeting. The old sunk cost fallacy strikes again, right? The phenomena where a person is reluctant to abandon a strategy or course of action because they have invested heavily in it already, even when it is clear that abandonment would be more beneficial, right? This keeps meat sacks in bad relationships and keeps meat sacks in cults. Alice did stand up to him <laughs> when she felt Jeffrey crossed the line with her when he tried to literally smear his shit on her face. And now she told him to fuck off. I guess good for her to have some boundaries. Wow. Jeffrey needs a psychologist. Or I don't know, maybe a gun with one bullet. Play some uh, solo Russian roulette. Uh, Jeffrey now starts to disappear again, telling Alice that he's been taking night classes at the hospital. And then of course she finds out that there are no night classes at the hospital. Things come to a head with Alice demanding to know where he was on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Jeffrey had simply disappeared that weekend, vanished on Thursday, and then didn't reappear until Monday. Jeffrey said he spent the weekend in Springfield, about 50 miles south of Max Creek, at a motel with a woman who also worked at the hospital. He said this woman wanted to marry him, but Jeffrey claims they did not have an affair. He explained that he and this woman, they stayed in separate rooms. She wanted to make love with him, of course, but he was physically incapable of having sex, but because he was still in love with Alice. Jeffrey would say that Alice's behavior towards him had driven him to this other woman, that it was all her fault. I hate to place blame, but it's all your fault. Why wouldn't you just let me smear my shit on your face? If you love someone, you let them smear their shit on your face. Amazingly, Alice thanks Jeffrey for not committing adultery Ugh, and for not leaving her and the kids. Oh, Alice. Sad, sad Alice. Please, meet sex, raise your kids to hopefully make better decisions than Alice. Let Alice be a cautionary tale of what can happen to you when you're not taught how the world really works. Build up your kids' self-esteem. Right? Teach them how to respect themselves. Teach them they don't need to be married. They can take care of themselves. Teach women they don't need a man. 
that it is better to raise kids as a single mom than it is to live like this, right? Fuck all that old, outdated, patriarchal modalities, that nonsense that, you know, women need to stay with the man even in this situation instead of striking out on their own. Now, fuck living like this. Jeffrey now drives all of them back to the rental house. When it's time for bed that night, Jeffrey tells her he wants to make love and he literally points towards the bathroom. My God. Alice now understands that this is a condition of having Jeffrey as a husband. She has to put up with his shit, literally put up with his shit, or he will disappear. This story is already so much more insane than I thought it was going to be. Cue Alice having so much shit smeared all over her face now. She must have had pink eye constantly. Alice would also find out by calling the hospital that Jeffrey had an affair and, uh, you know, did have an affair. And when she called a list of motel rooms, they confirmed that, no, he stayed there with the woman. There was no separate rooms. Fully blaming herself, Alice decides that she has no choice. If she wants to keep her husband, right, she just has to submit to Jeffrey entirely. Oh, boy. And so their sex life gets weirder. Of course it does. You let a guy literally smear his shit on your face, eh, he's probably not going to stop there. One night in February of 1980, Jeffrey brings Alice a glass of Coke and vodka, which shocks her because she didn't drink. After a couple drinks, he tells her that he wants her to give him a bath and wash his hair, then comb it and set it in rollers. Okay. Then he, uh, he has her clean and file his fingernails and toenails and put on one of, her, one of her nightgowns. Then he shows Alice this harness with a dildo attached to it and tells her that, that uh, he wants her to wear it and pretend that she is raping him. It is pegging a clock. And shockingly, she doesn't want to. I am honestly surprised. You would think after taking so much of his shit, literally, that she would love to aggressively destroy his butthole. But she doesn't. An argument ensues. They start fighting physically. After she grabs his throat, he throws her against the wall. She crawls into the bathroom, locks the door, and passes out. According to medical records at the Lake of the Ozarks Hospital, Alice's spleen was ruptured and was leaking blood. She wouldn't notice that until two weeks later when she passes out again. Uh, Twice during the surgery to remove her damaged spleen, Alice almost dies. She leaves the hospital in March, but complications leave her bedridden. While she is groggy with medication after all this, Jeffrey has sex with her. Sounds pretty rapey. Then a few weeks later, she discovers that she is pregnant again. Meanwhile, Jeffrey, still writing bad checks, enough to force him to move yet again in with Ralph and Donna. This guy, this is the guy who will claim to be God's prophet. This absolute fucking loser. Just before moving in with Ralph and Donna, Jeffrey and Alice get evicted after their landlord checks uh, that, the, that the farmhouse that the Lundgrens had been renting, um, you know, don't go through. Uh, uh, the, the landlord is shocked by what he sees. Everything is in disarray or broken. For some reason, Jeffrey had used a saw to cut through the pipe that drained the toilet, leaving toilet paper feces and urine piling up on the basement floor. (sighs) This guy loved poop. I never thought we would find someone who loved poop as much as Albert Fish. Showbiz. Uh, But we might have done so this week. Uh, The puddle of human shit in the basement floor is estimated to (laughs) be a foot deep and six feet in diameter. And inside the bedroom closet, the landlord finds a stack of porn mags, uh, bondage and sadomasochism mostly. And then beside them is a quote, dirty dildo caked in, with feces. Who's a poopy boy? Uh, Jeffrey. Who's a hot, hard, poopy father, daddy, simply dripping in his own shit. On August, <laughs> August 6th, this is so crazy. This is someone's life. On August 6th, 1980, Jeffrey announces to his family that he's quit his job at the hospital. Uh, what his family didn't know was uh, that morning, a hospital employee had walked into an office and caught Jeffrey and some lady there that was his girlfriend embracing. And he was witness fondling her breasts. And instead of sticking around and getting fired, he just leaves. 
And he takes off for independence where he will spend the following four months likely staying with the family while Alice is heavily pregnant with their fourth child at home with her family. Her dumpster fire of a life just keeps burning hotter and hotter. December of 1980, Alice gives birth to a boy and Jeffrey's pissed. He wanted a girl. Why? Well, we probably don't want to know. Alice named the boy Caleb after Caleb mentioned in the Old Testament. She would also discover that Jeffrey had taken off his insurance, taken her, excuse me, off of his insurance months before pocketing the extra cash and doing God knows what with it. So more money problems. But she still didn't think there was anything uh, she could do about this. Though Jeffrey was still living in Independence, he would come by Alice's parents' house on the weekends, you know, to stop by, visit, force Alice to have poop sex with him in a sunken bathtub. Not kidding. One weekend, uh, Jeffrey told her to strip and he started to tie her up. Then after they had sex, didn't untie her. That night, he had sex with her multiple times. When she said she had to use the bathroom, he simply led her to the bathroom, still tied up, told her to do her business on him. And she did. More poop. Never enough poop for Lord Jeffrey, defiler of souls, God's chosen defecator. Uh, He kept her tied up for almost the entire weekend. Who was watching the kids while all this is going on? Who the fuck knows in the story? February of 1981, Jeffrey once again is arrested for bad checks. This time, Ralph's sister pays his bail. Why? And how embarrassing. Jeffrey has zero shame. She should have let him rot in there. A few days later, he somehow lies his way into another job at St. Mary's uh, Hospital in Independence, making $32,000 a year. For the first time in their lives as a couple, Jeffrey and Alice now have enough cash to pay rent, buy groceries, and still have a few dollars left over. So Jeffrey immediately starts buying a bunch of rifles. Yeah, totally. Uh, Don't save money, Jeffrey. Don't start an IRA or put money into a 401k. Don't save for a rental or to actually own a house. You know, uh, Mr. Father of four kids. No, uh, how boring. Fuck delayed gratification. The second you start making extra money, uh, just start buying rifles. That's smart. In the fall of 1981, Alice finds a beautiful two-story stone house to rent located directly across from the Independence Medical Center on East 23rd Street. The rent's $400 a month. Man, those days are sure fucking long gone. You could not rent a shed in Battle Mountain, Nevada for $400 a month now. They also start going to church again, which they hadn't done in years. And Jeffrey decides he wants to become a priest again. I mean, well, why wouldn't he? He has so much wisdom to share with others, at least a lot of relationship advice. What a great shepherd he could be. Also, he gets fired from his hospital job in December of 1982. Fucking moron couldn't keep the best job he ever had for even two years. Despite uh, desperate, excuse me, for money again, the Lundgrens hit up their old friends, Dennis and Tanya, for some quick cash. Get a loan they'll never pay back. Then Jeffrey finds his very last paying job in April of 1983 as a salesman for a company that sold equipment to hospitals. And it will not last long at all. Within just a few weeks, Jeffrey is asked to resign because of questions over charge card and car expenses. But who cares? Just a few weeks before, another opportunity had come up. Through his new priesthood training, somehow let this fucking dipshit in now, Jeffrey had met Dr. James H. Robbins, a successful area podiatrist who had begun to think that his money and status were getting in the way of his true salvation. Sounds like an idiot. Uh, Robbins started to think that the solution to his problem might be something called living in, living in common endeavor, a concept for Mormons that dates back to its early days. Early church leaders like Sidney Rigdon believed that the first Christians mentioned in the New Testament had lived communally. And he encourages followers to do the same, uh, which is, there actually is scriptural basis for this. Uh, one group established a commune outside of Kirtland in 1830, but within a year, a year, excuse me, they began quarreling over possessions. Of course they did. Does true communal living where everyone shares all their shit literally ever work for very long? 
Or are we biologically hardwired to always be competing for resources on some level? Over time, numerous other devout Mormons had organized similar communes, but none had lasted, zero. Nevertheless, after undergoing a surgical operation for stomach cancer in 1982, Robbins was more eager than ever to try communal living. So in February of 83, Jim Robbins and his wife, Laura, told the Lundgrens that they wanted to help support them, to form a commune with them. (laughs) Jeffrey must have wiped so much shit on Alice's face that night in celebration. Probably covered himself as well. Maybe after Alice put his hair up in rollers and used a dirty dildo to peg the shit out of him. Uh, What Jim and Laura didn't know was that the Lundgrens were being supported by other church members as well. They got donations from two other families besides the Robinsons and paid for their rent and utilities from a special fund for poor Mormons. Jeffrey is such a parasite. Around this time, Louise Stone visits Alice and is shocked to see that there isn't any food in the house, not even a crumb. Then returning with Alice one day, she sees that the front porch is overloaded with groceries now. When she asks Alice where it has come from, she says that Jeffrey has prayed and worked it out with God. Other people have to work jobs, Alice said, but Jeffrey has things to do for God and doesn't have to work like everyone else. Other people are supposed to take care of Jeffrey and Jeffrey is supposed to serve God. Uh Uh-huh. Jeffrey needs a fucking hard punch in the face. Uh, I want to feel bad for Alice. She is a victim in all of this. She just, she makes it hard to sympathize with her, for me at least. She makes just so many unbelievably stupid choices. Uh, Just so delusional. The Robinses and the Lundgrens will take a trip together now to Kirtland, Ohio, which will end abruptly when Jim Robbins, still suffering from stomach cancer, collapses. Alice and Laura want to get him to a hospital, but Jeffrey is calm. He says he's gotten a hold of some of Jeffrey's poop from the bathroom the other day. He's eaten it. Based on taste and texture, he knows Jimmy's all good. But no, for real. He said he prayed about it and Jeffrey's going to be fine. A couple days later, Jeffrey told Jim that he'd been praying. God had given him a choice. He could either witness one of the visions that Joseph Smith had seen or he could cure Jim of his cancer. And he chose to cure Jim of his cancer because he's the best guy. And now Jeffrey said, Jim is cured. Jeffrey's cured him. Yeah, he's good. Cancer's gone. After a few baffled moments, Jim thanks him, uh, you know, said he didn't know if he was cured. Turns out he was, uh, in a sense. All he knew is that he had placed his faith in God. When Jim Robbins went to church that Sunday, everyone is buzzing with the marvelous story of how Jeffrey Lundgren miraculously cured Jim's cancer. Meanwhile, during tax season of 1983, Laura and Jim discovered that they had given the Lundgrens over 200, oh, excuse me, over $2,000. I almost really ramped that up. And they weren't even sure Jeffrey was looking for work. How were they supposed to live communally? when Jeffrey didn't seem to want to contribute at all. And this is why communal living doesn't work. Uh, They quickly fall out of favor with one another. Early October 1983, Jeffrey is ordained at Slover Park into the RLDS priesthood. He'd been out of work for more than a year, but the elders in the church didn't seem to mind. Years later, regular members would still recall his first sermon. He didn't speak from a prepared text. Instead, he read a series of scriptures. Every one of the verses was about God's wrath and how he would destroy the wicked. And he seemed to stare at one member of the congregation a lot. Jim Robbins would feel like that sermon was pointedly aimed at him. How dare Jim get mad over being irritated with Jeffrey after giving him $2,000 and not being given anything in return other than the, the cancer cure. Jim actually would live 50 more years until 1998. Yeah, Jeffrey got lucky with that one. Uh, Jeffrey would not be asked to preach again after his fire and brimstone vendetta sermon. Also in the fall of 1982, Jeffrey and Alice's son, Damon, now 13, has an accident, breaks a rib. It punctures his liver. Alice stays with him in the hospital. But then one night, Jeffrey insists that she come home. She does come home, but she wants to head back to the hospital, be with her son. When she tries to leave to go check on their son, Jeffrey throws her to the ground and literally rapes her. 
She cries for hours until Jeffrey walks in with the rose he had put into a vase like nothing had ever happened. My God. The next day, Alice telephones Louise Stone, comes clean about everything she'd experienced at Jeffrey's hands, including all the feces stuff. And Louise tells her, you need to get a divorce now. But then that night, Jeffrey comes home, tells Alice he'd had a vision from Jesus, uh, a vision, excuse me, of Jesus Christ on the cross, said he was one of the masses crucifying Jesus. But then he made eye contact with the son of God. And then he morphed into Jesus's consciousness. Cool story, bro. Then he said he could see all things past, present, and future. And he fully understood God's love for all of humanity. And Alice apparently told him that was the most beautiful religious experience I've ever heard. And when Louise called her that afternoon to check up on her, she said she can't get a divorce because if she does, Jeffrey's not going to be able to do his work for God. Again, sad, sad Alice. In the fall of 1983, Jeffrey starts teaching Sunday school classes for the Slover Park RLDS congregation. Apparently, they will take anyone. His classes are immediately controversial. Nearly everything Jeffrey is teaching is based on fundamentalist RLDS doctrine, but these conservative beliefs are no longer fashionable amongst church leaders. The idea that the RLDS was God's only true church was now being de-emphasized. Some liberals had even suggested that the Book of Mormon was a fictional morality play, not Holy Scripture. And there was the issue of women becoming priests, which the liberal side was strongly advocating for. And Jeffrey hated all of this. His lectures were old school, filled with predictions about God's coming wrath, destruction, maybe some poop. There will be poop, children. There will be great shitstorms. And they will bring turds to the righteous and the wicked. No one will be spared from God's shitstorm. You will have so much poop smeared upon your faces, children. And it will be glorious. I mean, uh, horrible. <laughs> when in April of 1984, the church allowed women to become priests, Jeffrey is more upset, right? Women are not meant to be priests. They're meant to be empty vessels for men to fill with poop or something. Uh, that June, Jeffrey taught a lesson that simply pushed the Slover Park elders too far, teaching a Sunday school class that God and Christ were the same entity not two separate beings. It was a weird thing for him to do because Jeffrey's comments uh, contradicted RLDS doctrine. Uh, they raised questions about Joseph Smith Jr.'s first vision. The saints had been taught that God and Jesus Christ had appeared as two separate individuals in front of Smith, right? That's a different thing with uh, LDS, RLDS, that uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, God, Jesus, are three entities, not three parts of the same. Some congregants immediately openly call him a liar. Others say he's being influenced by none other than Satan, church fight, Jeffrey reacts by inviting Georgia Dennis and Tanya Patrick, Dennis and Cheryl Avery, about six other couples to his house on Sunday afternoons for some private scripture classes of his own. Dennis and Cheryl Avery will play important and oh so tragic roles in the story. Uh, they were prettily, uh, pretty immediately identifiable as outcasts in their community. Dennis was small, mousy, not well liked. Cheryl, awkward as fuck, uncomfortable around strangers, both socially awkward. Uh, Cheryl had grown up in a poor family with two brothers. Her mom and her stepdad never knew her biological dad who abandoned the family when Cheryl was seven months old while on a tour of the Pacific with the army. Without money to attend college, Cheryl bounced around for a few years until Labor Day weekend in September of 1969 when she met Dennis. She was 22. He was 29. It was both of their first dates ever. 29 going on a first date. Unless you are truly asexual, possible big red flag there. I mean, what is going on socially? Maybe just super, super awkward. Maybe some mental health problems. Anyway, these two will get married eight months later. Dennis is described as looking stereotypically nerdy with thick frame glasses. He'd grown up in Baldwin Park, a suburb of Los Angeles. Graduated from high school in 1958. Excuse me, before working as a clerk at a bank in a mailroom. Oh, excuse me, and in a mailroom. 
Both were good, well-intentioned people. Not go-getters, but nice. Dennis had a reputation for being sort of lazy, which, uh, you know, was maybe why they were always broke, especially when their three daughters came along. Yeah, yeah, who cares about any financial stability before you have kids? Uh, None of the Avery family fit into the Slover Park congregation, and so they were glad when they befriended Jeffrey Lundgren and his wife, Alice, at first. Uh, This new friendship will not work out well for them at all, not in the end. Now at his own off-brand Sunday school, Jeffrey will tell the few people listening that he had another vision, that God had shown him two options. He would choose riches, live a normal life, or he could walk down the Lord's path and serve him. Jeffrey said, of course, he had chosen God's path. He walked down the path in this vision, which featured a rowdy bar where sinners are drinking, hanging out. And then he came to a place full of heavy fog. There God gave him a bunch of poop to wipe all over his face, wiping that good shit, God shit all over his face. And of course, all over his not so clean wing, so glorious. No, God gave him gold plates, some new gold plates. Uh-huh. Not the same gold plates that, you know, Joseph Smith uh, had received. Now these were identical, but different plates. And like with Smith, God wanted someone to transcribe them. Almost like he's plagiarizing Smith here. Not imaginative enough to come up with his own vision. He is the uh, generic counterpart <laughs> to Prophet Joseph Smith. Like he, he could be like a, in the action figure world I've been talking about lately. He could be the generic version of Prophet uh, Joseph. It's, there's Prophet Joseph, his name brand, and Prophet Jeffrey is a knockoff. Even sounds like a, a knockoff. You know, whereas Prophet Joseph... Starts an empire, the largest, most financially successful new religion in the last few centuries. Uh, He reimagines the afterlife, makes it better. New levels of heaven are added, creates an entirely new vision of the Godhead. The second coming adds so much rich mythology, uh, reestablishes polygamy, takes multiple wives. Prophet Jeffrey, on the other hand, uh, gets about six couples to come to his house and bitch about how the church is letting women become priests. Uh, Barely dips his toes into polygamy later, focusing more on pooping on his one wife rips off the same types of visions that Smith had. He's a, he's an especially sad knockoff, but still happens to be part of the set. New from the makers of Fighting Man, Atomic Man, Flying Guy, Warrior Woman, and Attack Cat. It's Prophet Jeffrey. Do you need a new prophet? Do you need a new guru? Do you need a new guiding light? Get you some paradise? But you don't want to pay too much for a name brand profit. Why pay for Prophet Joseph when Prophet Jeffrey is half price? Do you want to get pooped on? Do you want to get pooped on? Prophet Jeffrey knows what you want and you want to get pooped on. Prophet Jeffrey can hear God's truth. God knows what you want. And you want to get pooped on. And you want to get pooped on. But you don't want to pay too much for a name. Brand Profit. Save your money and buy Profit Jeffrey for half the price. He can't shit on your tits. Complete your action hero people set today. Fighting man, flying guy, warrior woman, attack cat. Atomic Man, and now, Prophet Jeffrey. And coming soon, Karate Lady and Spy Person. Oh, poop and actual prophecies not included. You got to make that shit yourself. Make that shit. Rub it on your fucking face. Okay, that might have been too too much. Or might have been just enough. Or might have been the best song anyone's ever come up with in 10 minutes. 
I hope the neighbors here in the building enjoyed that. Anyway, in his knockoff vision, knockoff prophet Jeffrey started taking the plates to the church. God told him the church couldn't translate them because they hadn't been faithful enough to God's word. <laughs> totally. You know, those fucking cocksuckers. All of this, of course, meant that God wanted Jeffrey to personally bring forth revelations. Okay, burdens on him. And it meant that the current president of the RLDS church, Wallace Smith, was a fallen prophet. And all this made sense to Alice because Alice, as we know, is very bad at thinking, especially when it comes to Jeffrey. Uh, she still believed that the man at her summer, uh, what the man at her summer camp had told her, that she was going to marry a man with a mission from God. Too bad that summer camp guy didn't give her a heads up about all the poop stuff that, that guy was going to be into. Uh, soon, Jeffrey's mission becomes clear. In July of 1984, Jeffrey announces that the family has to go to the Kirtland Temple in Kirtland, Ohio, to fully hear God's message for him. To go to Kirtland, the family sells some valuables, including Jeffrey's gun collection. They take up donations. The couples who had gathered at the Lundgren's house gave them money for moving expenses. Uh, who knew it would cost a bunch of money to head to Ohio? On August 19th, 1984, the family arrives in Kirtland and they immediately go to the uh, the red brick Kirtland RLDS church and visitor center. And they talk their way into living in a church provided house there. Jeffrey soon dedicates himself to giving tours. The manager of the temple puts him in charge of the financial records. Not good. Uh, collecting the offerings, offerings left at the temple, keeping track of sales at the visitor center. Uh, he'd tell the church, which wasn't paying him a salary, that he was surviving on a monthly stipend from an inheritance, which was a lie. God's prophets love to lie. Uh, this prophet, Jeffrey, flat broke, but always seemed to have money from somewhere. How did he blow through uh, Jimmy's compound money already? Well, I don't know. He blows through uh, lots of money. Dennis and Cheryl Avery were the Lundgren's first visitors at their new compound, uh, new home, not compound yet. When she returned home, Cheryl sent a long letter to her mom saying that she had found someone with the answers that she had been looking for. Jeffrey would also run into Kevin Curie, an old buddy from the Navy in Kirtland. Kevin and Jeffrey had, uh, they'd had conversations about Mormonism while on duty. In the year since, Kevin had lapsed. He got married, got divorced, uh, even been involved in a, oh no, homosexual affair. And now he wanted God to cure him of his desires instead of, I don't know, embracing them, understanding that they weren't maybe just going to go away magically and possibly live in a very happy homosexual life. Uh, Kevin's religious fervor reignites in Jeffrey's presence. In January of 1985, Kevin requested transfer to a VA hospital outside of Cleveland. And when it was approved, he moves in with Jeffrey and Alice. He slept on a bed that Jeffrey put in the room where Damon and Jason slept. Okay, now I hate Jeffrey and Alice. Sorry, Alice, I tried to feel sorry for you. I really did, but fuck you both. You want to let Jeffrey shit on your chest? Okay, but you let him bring some random fucking dude home and let that guy sleep in a room with your young sons? Do you want them to end up molested? Let him sleep in your room if he has to stay with you. He can, he can poop on Jeffrey while Jeffrey poops on you or something. But don't bring your kids into this mess. Not where, you know, this dude has nightly access to them privately. You are asking for trouble. At first, Kevin gave Jeffrey money each week for groceries. Then in early March, Jeffrey suggested that Kevin give him his entire paycheck each month. This, according to Jeffrey, was so Jeffrey could maintain household authority in the, in the kid's eyes. And that argument somehow made sense to Kevin. Uh, Kevin earned about $1,600 a month, and now he hands all of that over to Jeffrey. Meanwhile, Jeffrey astounds Kevin with talks about visions. He's having all kinds of visions. Sure, God could have picked, I don't know, Michael Jordan to receive visions. MJ has just started playing for the Bulls at this time. He's about to single-handedly change the popularity of the NBA, become one of the most, uh, uh, you know, known figures in the entire world. But no, why waste time with Jordan when you can have Jeffrey? Jeffrey will surely reach more of the righteous than Jordan. One night, Jeffrey claims to see a ghostly white figure heading up the stairs of the temple. That figure, he said, 
was none other than Joseph Smith. He said that if only he had been cleaner, a better person, he could have spoken to Smith. Maybe Smith didn't like all the feces. Uh, When Jeffrey repeated the story at church on Sunday, everyone was shocked, but also believed him. Oh boy. Though he was still entertained... (laughs) Though he was still entertained uh, by Jeffrey Kevin, though, now not happy with the overall setup. Once he began giving over his paycheck, he would start to feel less like a roommate and more like Jeffrey and Alice's kid. He uh, had to ask them for his own money and provide a good reason for needing it. Jeffrey would always make it clear that Kevin was using his own money selfishly. Kevin started to babysit the kids, clean the house, cook most of the meals, all while giving his wages to Jeffrey and Alice. Alice and Jeffrey uh, also start getting close with the temple's new interns especially Sharon Blunchley. Like the Avery, Sharon was a bit of an outcast. Never been on a date, never kissed a boy. She was 27 without a career path or a family. A few days after Sharon arrived in Kirtland, Alice invited her over, easy money. They began talking about Jeffrey and in a matter of minutes, Jeffrey appeared saying that he had gotten a sense that someone was talking about him. At the time, Sharon thought he really was having some kind of amazing intuition, maybe a little minor prophecy, right? This is a spiritual gift. Later, she would think this was a setup, which it was. During the summer of 1985, Alice shows Sharon how to fix her hair, how to buy clothes that complement her figure, how to do her nails, how nice, how kind. Uh, Then Alice takes a step further and wants to become Sharon's sex therapist of a sort. Alice Skidmark Lundgren, a sex therapist? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she's very unqualified for that, but she does it anyway. Alice has Sharon watch a videotape of Tina Turner dancing, fucking random, and some softcore porn. I don't know. That's a weird pairing. Uh, Urging her to become carnal, sensual, and devilish. Short time later, Alice asks uh, Kevin to take Sharon on a date. Doesn't lead to anything. Definitely doesn't lead to Sharon taking a dump on his chest or pegging him or something. But at least now she's been on a date. Eventually, Sharon agrees to turn over her salary of $500 a month to the Lundgren household. And in return, they promise to pay her bills and feed her. Right? Meanwhile, Jeffrey is now focusing on another intern. 19-year-old Danny Kraft. He tells Danny in a totally not creepy way at all to call him dad and Alice mom. Totally normal for a 35-year-old man and a 34-year-old woman to ask a 19-year-old that they've just met to call them mom and dad. You can trust us. Also around this time, Jeffrey is sending Kevin out on recon missions, spying on various interns, find out what they're saying about the Lundgrens. And Jeffrey is collecting and keeping what he calls love offerings from his guided tours of the church, even though he is technically supposed to hand over all offerings to the temple and the community center right? Love offerings. What a nice way to describe stealing from a church. Did you steal tithings from the congregation, Jeffrey? I would never. You must be thinking of the love offerings I've been collecting. Did I accept some generous love offerings? Of course I did. Am I not taught to accept love? Is that what you're saying? Uh, After the summer had wound to a close, all the interns had departed except for Sharon. It was time for the church to audit the books for the visitor center. Temple manager now discovers that donations were way down much less than they'd been the previous year, even though a record number of tourists had visited the center. Huh, how weird. Wait a minute. The books started coming up light when Jeffrey is put in charge of them? Jeffrey Lundgren, Lord Shitfingers, the guy God's always talking to? Uh, When questioned, Jeffrey simply blames one of the interns. Meanwhile, he starts uh, teaching his private culty Sunday school again, is now focused on something called uh, chiasmus. In a non-religious sense, or I'm sorry, at this point, he is not, uh, I, I believe this is not private. This is, he's teaching these uh, for the church. Yes. Uh, in a non-religious sense, a chiasmus is a reversal in the order of words in two otherwise parallel phrases, right? Like, uh, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country from JFK. Or one should eat to live, not live to eat 
Cicero. All for one and one for all. The Three Musketeers. Well, the theological foundation uh, of this kind of study for Jeffrey was that in everything created by God, the right side is a mirror image of the left side. People who believe in this concept cite Old Testament books such as Psalms, Proverbs, Lamentations, Micah, uh, Obadiah, uh, Habakkuk, Nahum, um, and uh, Zephaniah, saying that they're actually long Hebrew poems. Digging into some deep biblical cuts with Obadiah and Zephaniah. Uh, Prophetic books such as Isaiah, Job, Joel, uh, Amos, Hosea, and Jeremiah also contain lengthy segments of poetry. But unlike English poetry, old Hebrew poetry doesn't have rhyme or meter. Instead, ancient uh, Hebrew poems were written in a style called parallelism. Parallelism. Uh, basically, instead of rhyming sounds, grow, show, poets would, I don't know, for lack of a better phrasing, rhyme thoughts. Uh, essentially, they would repeat themselves. For example, in Psalm 19, verse 1, a Hebrew poet wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Both lines say the same thing in different ways. Uh, uh, chiasm is basically a diagram of when these thoughts get repeated most often in the pattern A, B, B, A, right? Verse 27, chapter two of the New Testament book of Mark is a chiasm. Uh, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The way you would diagram this chiasm is A, the Sabbath. B, was made for man. B, and not man. A, for the Sabbath. Once biblical scholars started doing this, some of them found that chiastic verses often had one line that was not repeated. This line nearly always in the center of the poem. For example, Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 to 9 reads, A, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. B, neither are your ways my ways. C, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. B, so are my ways higher than your ways. A, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The chiasm seems to indicate that the C line for the heavens are higher than the earth is the most important line in the text. Uh, By looking at scripture this way, you could supposedly figure out all of God's hidden meanings, right? Find those C lines and read between the lines, so to speak, read uh, the real Bible. Most biblical scholars say that this is all nonsense, that the C lines don't actually have anything to do with the secret message. Instead, chiasmus was particularly popular in the literature of the ancient world, uh, including Hebrew, Greek, Latin, even ancient Maya, people across the Atlantic, you know, because it articulated balance and order. Two things thought essential to something's beauty. Also intended to be convincing because chiasmus creates only two sides of an argument or idea for the listener to consider and then leads the listener to favor one side of the argument. And for that reason, it was favored a lot by the Greeks in their oratory style, which would then become some of the foundational ways in which we think about speaking and writing in the Western Judeo-Christian world. Jeffrey would lean in hard to chiastic interpretation and take it further than even other fringe chiastic interpreters. For Jeffrey, chiasmus meant that now he had a foolproof way of separating God's words from man's words in scripture, separating the true divine message from any messy interpretation. And he believed this because of a line in the Old Testament book of Job, verse 14 and chapter 33, which read, for God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. To Jeffrey, that was clear proof that God spoke in chiasmus meaning everything divine had an element of chiasmus in it. He'd take a red pen to his Bible and Book of Mormon, cross out passages where there was no chiasmus and claim those passages were not God's messages. He'd even say that the Kirtland Temple was an example of a chiasmus because the right side was a mirror image of the left side. The human body, he would say, is a chiasmus because, you know, if you cut it down the middle, both sides are symmetrical-ish. The world was so full of secret chiastic messages. He even claimed that he moved to Ohio because the word Ohio is chiastic. But is it? 
uh, O, right? The A's match up. The B's, H and I, uh, different letters. Uh, but this all made sense to him. <laughs> and it made him seem to some, uh, to a few, like a man whose interpretations of scripture were not based on emotion, but something real and provable, intelligent analysis, which he said he had invented, which he did not. The academic study of chiasmus in modern times can actually be dated to the work of Niels Wilhelm Lund, who published articles in 1930 and 1931. Uh, there was a book entitled Chiasmus in the New Testament, published in 1942, and it had become a, a small part of some people's biblical studies. Before Jeffrey started preaching about it, most of his congregants had even read an article written about it by uh, Ray Treat in the uh, Zera Helma record uh, about chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Still, not everyone is always familiar with everything being taught at their church. And I will say, with Mormon doctrine specifically, there is just so much scripture. There's the Bible, in and of itself, a massive compendium of information. The King James Version, 783,137 words. The Book of Mormon, 269,320 words. The average novel is between 70 to 120,000 words. There's the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, newsletters, uh, modern prophecies, so much information to process and digest. It would be so hard to remember that someone else had also come up with this obscure, seldom used form of interpretation before Jeffrey. So some thought that Jeffrey was a scriptural genius now, a true modern day prophet, especially Alice. Old poop fingers, truly one of God's most important living prophets, maybe the most important. She thought so even when uh, Jeffrey claimed to find a hidden treasury where Joseph Smith had also allegedly hidden precious objects in Chapman Forest. Jeffrey claimed that while, of course, he had found it, God only told him in a, or told him in a vision that the treasury would only be opened if God wanted it to be opened. And so if anyone else went looking for it, it wouldn't appear. You know, they weren't worth, they weren't worthy and stuff. You get it. Classic God, mysterious ways. Jeffrey said that so far, God had only fully revealed to him one golden plate of messages. But Jeffrey told Alice that he couldn't reveal what it said because God didn't want him to. Not yet. And all of this made perfect sense to Skidmark. Once you've learned how to accept being shit on, having shit rubbed on your face while you're tied up and fucking stuff. I bet it's easier to accept almost anything. Uh, what Jeffrey could share with Alice was that writing was about what God, uh, the writing he saw was about what God wanted Jeffrey Lundgren to do. And Alice was ecstatic, right? With her bills taken care of, courtesy of Kevin and Sharon and her husband on the precipice of making a major religious move, she thought it was only a matter of time before something truly amazing happened. All her sacrifices, her weird horrific sexual sacrifices. Uh, they were about to pay off. There was at least one person though who really was not excited about what Jeffrey was preaching. The Reverend Dale Luffman had become the RLDS stake president in the Kirtland area back in January of 1986. As such, he was supposed to make sure that the 12 congregations in his stake operated smoothly and adhered to church policy. Luffman was a full-time salaried employee of the RLDS who answered to church officials at their headquarters in Independence. Educated at Princeton University's Theological Seminary, Luffin was a liberal-leaning RLDS member who did not take to Jeffrey Lundgren's bullshit. And I know you can argue that all of this, all of religion is bullshit, but in that sense, he at least didn't, uh, you know, in that sense, he, he at least knew that Jeffrey's bullshit did not match up with the official bullshit as he had studied it. Lundgren immediately told his Sunday school members that Luffman was preaching lies when the latter spoke about God's love for everyone. Instead, Jeffrey said their God was a God of vengeance who would punish everyone. Nice, getting a bit doomsday now. Be pretty funny if this immediately cost him all of his followers. What, Jeffrey? God wants to punish everyone? Well, why are we going to worship God then? No, we're going to go pray to the loving God that Luffin talks about. Uh, no thank you to this negative Nancy gobbledygook. 
Uh, Leffman told Jeffrey that he thought of his, uh, what he thought of his teachings. Jeffrey didn't seem very apologetic, didn't seem to care. And then, while I'm sure he wanted to work towards having Jeffrey excommunicated, complicating that was that uh, fundamentalist elders of the congregation were rallying around Jeffrey. However, Luffman could still discipline Jeffrey. The elders in the church had recommended that Jeffrey be promoted within the RDLS priesthood to the rank of elder. As stake president, Luffman got the first shot at answering or rejecting that request, and so he rejected it. But the rejection seemed to win Jeffrey more status. He was now a fundamentalist folk hero in the stake. Jeffrey would still, uh, or would tell people jokingly that he was Joseph Smith reincarnated now. Was he really joking? Then Jeffrey led a boycott of Luffman's sermons in church groups. Meanwhile at home, Kevin notices that Jeffrey is spending hours talking about how he is going to lead a revolt of RLDS fundamentalists against Luffman and more. He's going to oust Wallace B. Smith, the prophet president of the RLDS. He's going to fire Luffman, kick all the women out of the priesthood, restore the true RLDS church, and declare himself new president prophet. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. And then Jeffrey almost gets himself kicked out of the FLDS. In late April 1986, managers of the temple noticed that the money in the visitor center's cash box does not match receipts uh, receipts they had. $67 is missing. And Jeffrey says, yeah, he did take it. He used the money to buy groceries for his kids, even though management knew he had been saying that he had been living on an inheritance. They decide to let this petty theft go for now. Meanwhile, Jeffrey decides to go on a lecture tour to Richmond, Missouri, uh, Missouri, where he also meets up with a friend, Richard Brand. Yes, Dick Brand. His old friends, Cheryl and Dennis Avery. He urged all of them to come to Curland. And as soon as Jeffrey got back, he started socializing with the new summer interns and returning intern, Danny Kraft. Uh, Richard Brand uh, would soon take Jeffrey up on his offer, and which is great. Got some dick in this cult now. This, this story keeps getting better. Uh, the youngest of three children and the only son of Wilmer G. and Twilia Brand, Dick grew up in what authorities would later describe as a quintessential all-American home. His dad was an air traffic controller, an ordained RLDS elder, a good provider. Twilia stayed at home to look after her children. In high school, Dick was a member of the National Honor Society, the baseball and basketball teams, and a writer on the school newspaper. He was a solid Dick, salt of the earth Dick, cream of the crop Dick, real top shelf Dick. He graduated from the University of Missouri, Everyone expected him to go on to graduate school as he was, as one professor described, an outstanding young man, full of potential, an outstanding dick. Uh, But then he'd blow off better opportunities and study with Jeffrey Lundgren instead. Jeffrey would wreck this dick. Soon Lundgren would suggest that Richard Brandt, uh, I think I said Brandt, Brandt to the T, move in with the family. Richard would sell a truck that he paid $13,000 for, for a mere $5,000 at Jeffrey's suggestion, and hand Jeffrey over that money. By the fall of 1986, Jeffrey has attracted a core group of disciples. Kevin and Richard live with him in the house. Danny and Sharon live across the street in student apartments that they rented from the church. About twice a week, Jeffrey is holding special classes at his house. Most are focusing on how the mainstream RLDS church is too liberal. He's speaking about uh, chiasmus, how he has discovered through his interpretation that every scripture has a secret hidden meaning that he can reveal to them, making him the most uh, most important prophet. You know, uh, now he tells Alice that the reason he had had that vision back in 1983, the one where he was at Jesus' crucifixion, wasn't a vision. It was a flashback because he was actually there. Mm-hmm. And what sounded remarkably like the plot of the Highlander, uh, Jeffrey explained that God had created eight great seers at the beginning of time. These men had lived through the centuries without knowing that they were immortal until God needed them. At that point, God gave them the power to understand who they really were. If, uh, it all made sense according to Jeffrey. He was so special because he was one of these eight. He had lived other lives before. Now God had unsealed his eyes. It was his time to rise up and behead the rest of the Highlanders. There can be only one. 
Yes, of course. He'd always known he was special. He knew it when he shit on his wife's tits in the bathtub without asking her if it was okay. He knew it when he, uh, you know, beat her up after she wouldn't put his hair up in curlers and peg him. He knew it when he started using feces as jerk-off lube as a teen. He was one of God's most important men, part of the elite and holy eight. And Alice loves all of this. Of course she does. She's Alice. If being gullible was a sport, she would be the Michael Jordan of that sport. Uh, the pair do not immediately tell everyone else he's a prophet, though. Instead, they begin dropping hints to their study group, right? Saying things like, uh, isn't it crazy how God's revealing all these things to Jeffrey? Follower Kevin Curie, he's skeptical. He doesn't understand how words that sometimes sure look opposite as hell to him are actually perfectly synonymous according to Jeffrey. But if whenever he raises a complaint, Jeffrey tells him it's be, uh, he's not understanding the pattern because he's not a special seer. Sorry, bro. It's above your pay grade. Uh, he also notices that Jeffrey and Alice are now trying to separate him from the others, right? As soon as he starts to question things, start rumors about him that he is okay, which he might have been. Kevin now decides to move back to Buffalo. I'm assuming this is one of the best decisions that dude had ever made. Jeffrey and Alice then tell, uh, you know, their congregants that, uh, you know, he left because he fell in love with another man. Meanwhile, Jeffrey is now pressing Greg Winship to join the group. He'd come to Kirtland to visit his pal, Dick Brandt. Uh, Brent, uh, Greg was uh, very interested in scripture, but more importantly, also from a wealthy family. Around this time also, the Avery family gives Jeffrey and Alice their old truck. And now we jump ahead a few weeks to 1987. Without explanation, Jeffrey invites Dennis and Tanya Patrick to move to Kirtland. In January, two of his early private religious studies attendees, he suggests they sell their house, bring the money they got for it with them to give to him, of course. February 28th, they drive to Kirtland in a rental truck filled with their belongings and stop at the Lundgren house. And then when they get there, Jeffrey is cold to them. He tells them they are not welcome until they have learned things you have to learn. Mysterious ways. He has to act the part of the cult leader now. Also in February of 1987, Dennis and Cheryl Avery announced to their families that they're moving to Kirtland. This is because Jeffrey told Dennis about the pattern, the chiasmus. According to Jeffrey, his chiastic diagrams prove that Zion, the fabled promised land, is in Kirtland. Dennis and Cheryl are so eager to move to Kirtland that they don't bother to list their house for sale with a realtor. They sell it for $20,000 to some people they knew, even though the house was worth far more. All that mattered to them was getting to Kirtland. February 19th, Dennis gives his two weeks notice at Centier Bank, a bank that would be acquired and absorbed by U.S. Bank soon afterwards, uh, where he worked for 17 years, gave up a good job. In March, they rent a modest house just down the street from the Kirtland Temple. During the Avery's first two weeks in Kirtland, Jeffrey and Alice stopped by to check on them every day. On May 4th, 1987, Dennis opens a bank account, at the National City Bank, Jeffrey recommended it. Dennis deposits $20,532.55, which included his savings and the money that was paid uh, for, his, for his house. Besides the Patricks and the Averys, Greg Winship has also moved to Kirtland to study with Jeffrey. Uh, he's gotten a job at the, as a tour guide at the temple. Jeffrey now starts to recruit another couple, Ron and Susie Luff, who had once gone on a tour to the temple with him. They lived in Springfield, Missouri, and Jeffrey's been corresponding with them. Meanwhile, uh, to his growing group of devotees in Kirtland, Jeffrey is teaching scripture, kind of. Starts teaching them his version of scripture. This uh, group includes Richard, Sharon, Danny, Greg, Dennis, Patrick, Tanya, uh, Dennis Avery, uh, Cheryl, Alice, and on most occasions, Jeffrey's son, Damon Lundgren, who's now 16. Jeffrey tells them to erase everything in their minds that they thought they knew about religion. He says, you must get Satan's garbage out of your memory banks. I will teach you what to think, what to believe. Literally says that. I will teach you what to think, what to believe. Cult, cult, cult. And this all seemed to the group pretty legit. 
Jeffrey never said anything without having scriptures that seemed to back it up. And he would explain each verse and build on each verse piece by piece until he had constructed this an elaborate foundation that somehow kind of maybe seemed to have proven his point. He would just keep tossing out word salads uh, until, you know, these people were so fucking confused that they would just agree with any interpretation he gave them just to have the lesson be over with. Dennis Patrick will notice that no one can disagree with Jeffrey. If they do, they're made to look like they're disagreeing with God. Using chiasmus, Jeffrey would, you know, tell them that what a certain piece of scripture actually said, uh, you know, as opposed to what it looked like it said. And if the group couldn't see that, he would just go over with them over and over and over again until they would agree, right? He would just wear them down with assertive, repetitive nonsense. That is classic brainwashing. After several weeks of classes, Dennis and Tanya finally begin to feel that they're being accepted by the others in the group. Then on a late summer night, Jeffrey comes to their apartment. He explains that he wants them to join the family. The Lundgrens called their own children the naturals, he explained. Richard, Greg, Sharon, and Danny were now unnaturals, uh, you know, members of the second family. What an unflattering <laughs> group to belong to. But thank you, Jeffrey. I'm so excited to be an unnatural. Might as well have called them abominations. Well, anyone, everyone in the family called Alice and Jeffrey mom and dad. Before Dennis and Tanya can become one of the unnaturals, however, there is something they have to do. If they want to be in the family, Dennis Patrick has to turn over his weekly paycheck from the health spa where they worked. Jeffrey said that Dennis would then submit a monthly budget to him and Jeffrey would tell Dennis how much money he actually needed. Jeffrey immediately got angry when Dennis told him that most of the money they'd come with had been used to pay bills. What the fuck, you guys? Bills? You think your earthly bills are more important than helping God restore his kingdom here on earth through prophet Jeffrey? Dennis and Tanya agreed to give Jeffrey all their cash and future earnings. Now that they're in the group, they're allowed to come over more than once a week. They quickly began to notice that Jeffrey not only controls the family's money, but directs everyone's personal lives as well. Jeffrey claims that all of his followers' names uh, are hidden in the scriptures, just as his was, along with the names of their true companions, spouses God had created specifically for them. Uh, this true companion bullshit is how he would convince Greg Winship, stuck in a struggling marriage, to abandon his wife and head to Curlin, where he would have the opportunity to find his biblically ordained spouse. Meanwhile, Alice tries to matchmake Sharon with Richard Brandt, uh, saying that the two are meant to be together. Jeffrey affirms this on a scriptural basis, right? Scriptural bullshit basis. He would say, I looked in the scriptures and they were clear about it. Sharon was of Richard's flesh. Sharon needeth thy dick. It's all there if you understand chiasmus. This might've been uh, less motivated by scripture, more motivated by an insult, actually. A couple days earlier, Dick had poked fun at how pudgy Jeff was getting. Do not mock thy prophet's physique, Dick. Jeffrey then immediately uh, went inside, looked at scripture, finding a bunch of instances in which God was described as heavy and stout to say that God was fat. And Richard laughed at that. Then then didn't think about it anymore. Then a few weeks later, finds himself matched with Sharon, uh, the heaviest female member of the group. Still, Richard agrees to start dating her. At about the same time, Jeffrey announces that Dennis and Cheryl Avery are going through their money much too quickly. Jeffrey decides that he's going to hold a special class specifically designed to get the Avery's cash. He and Alice will do most of the talking. The unnaturals will do their part by agreeing with everything they say and pressuring Dennis and Cheryl to turn over the proceeds from the sale of their house. Everyone in the family agrees to this, uh, go along with this plan. June 27th, Dennis Avery comes to see Jeffrey. He and Cheryl had decided to give Jeffrey a check. They wanted to be one of the uh, heart and of, they wanted to be of one heart and of one soul with everyone else. In return, Jeffrey promises to pay the rent, but with one stipulation. He wants cash, not a check, untraceable. So Dennis agrees, gives him an envelope filled with $10,000 in cash. And within an hour, Jeffrey is at Veith Sports Supply buying a 45 caliber inner arm semi-automatic pistol. 
Then he drives to Pistol Pete's, another Ohio sporting goods store, buys a 243 caliber uh, Ruger hunting rifle, another 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic pistol, waits a week, returns to Pistol Pete's, buys a Ruger 44 caliber Magnum handgun. During the next few days, Jeffrey buys camouflage clothing, tents, camping supplies, canned food, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Jeffrey is stockpiling weapons and supplies for his, quote, storehouse. And then he'll tell all of his followers what this is for. Jeffrey tells his followers that major earthquakes are going to erupt during the final days before Christ returns. And a huge mountain is going to rise up underneath the Kirtland Temple, lifting it up into the sky. This is based on Jeffrey's reading of a section of Isaiah. And it shall come to pass in the last days when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. All nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Once the temple was raised on this mountain, Satan's armies are going to swarm to Ohio in a final attempt to destroy the temple, kill the last messenger and thereby prevent Christ from returning to earth. He said, what scripture is all of that based on? Uh, That's from the book of Jeffrey unpublished. According to his visions, Jeffrey and his followers would be waiting on the mountain for the onslaught, ready to fight Satan, restore Jesus Christ's kingdom. And as they did, they would have to live off the land without electricity, without houses. Some of them would be killed, Jeffrey said, but they would also shed blood themselves. Lots of it. So you know they needed guns. You cannot fight Satan without a bunch of guns. Everyone who knows anything about fighting demons knows that if you want to kill them, you have to shoot them in the head probably. I feel like they probably had zombies mixed up with demons. Right? You need guns for zombies. You need guns for anarchy. Uh, I don't think you need guns for demons. By June of 1987, Dale Luffman has been stake president for 18 months now, still has not been able to get rid of Jeffrey, nor quiet the growing feud that's splitting up his congregation. If anything, Luffman is losing at this point. The adult Sunday school class that Jeffrey taught had become a stronghold for dissidents. Yeah, he's teaching private classes at his house and also still able to teach a class at the church. Even if not everyone in the Sunday class uh, agreed with Jeffrey, Due to his core of loyal followers, Richard, Greg, Danny, Sharon, the Patricks, the Averys, people are uncomfortable disagreeing. Uh, By July, Luffman felt that the conflict had become, in his words, almost demonic. And now he decides to confront his critics head on. On Sunday morning, he walks into Jeffrey's class, makes a 15-minute plea for peace. Talks about splits in the church, how they all needed to come together, how he just wanted everyone to get along without name-calling and fighting. Speaks for 15 minutes. And to his shock, literally no one replies. Uh, They just open their books and start reading again. Uh, Jeffrey continues his lecture. It it was like Luffman was literally invisible, unable to be heard. Uh, When the class ended, Luffman approaches Jeffrey and fires him. Luffman is relieved when Jeffrey does not show up the following Sunday, but then dismayed to realize that Jeffrey is still teaching classes, right? Just uh, again, you know, more outside the church in living rooms. And nearly all of his attendees have followed him. Now Jeffrey orders the members of his group to begin withdrawing membership from the RLDS church. And in early August, uh, Kevin Curie knocks on Jeffrey's front door. He'd returned from Buffalo. He was homesick, he told Jeffrey, and wanted to move back in with them. So one of the best decisions he ever made, quickly followed by one of the worst decisions. Jeffrey said he was welcome to return, but his punishment, he made Kevin sleep for a week in the basement and also told him, you gotta stop being gay. No, Kevin, you really should have stayed in Buffalo. You had your chance. Things were looking better and better for Lord Jeffrey. He joked, I'm gaining more followers than Luffman. But then some of old Jeffrey's recent trans, uh, transgressions come back to bite him in the ass. A church official happened to notice that contributions to the Kirtland Temple and sales at the visitor center uh, had plummeted to an all-time low. And the church ordered an audit. Uh, Luffman would later say, over the period of time that Jeffrey Lundgren had been assigned the task of taking care of the financial records, two and a half years, the church calculated he had extracted out of the till between seventeen dollars and $21,000. 
Uh, but the church did not file criminal charges. And other sources uh, list different amounts. Uh, they didn't have any evidence that Jeffrey had taken it. The money had just disappeared while Jeffrey was in charge. Old Sticky Fingers Lundgren. That guy just couldn't resist trying to fuck up every job he had. Uh, Jeffrey and church officials uh, strike up a deal. Jeffrey will resign as temple guide. In return, the church will permit him to continue working for one more month and will let him stay in his church-provided house rent-free for a few more months until October. Jeffrey explains to everyone in his group of followers that he's been simply ousted for preaching the truth. Now Jeffrey has a new idea. He begins calling realtors. He gets in touch with a man named Stanley Skirbis, who owned a five-bedroom farmhouse on a 15.07-acre tract on the southern edge of Kirtland. Years ago, it had been a beautiful apple orchard with a comfortable two-story farmhouse, picturesque red barn, but the trees had been neglected and the house and barn were in bad need of repair. Skirbis was willing to rent it cheap, the entire acreage for $650 a month, if Jeffrey agreed to fix up the property. Jeffrey then called everyone together, explained what he had in mind. First, they would pool their money and rent the Skirbis property. Then they would repair the house and barn, work to make the apple orchard productive. Over time, they would open the barn as a combination crafts and antique store. Jeffrey and Alice would buy and sell the antiques. Group members would provide homemade crafts. They'd sell quilts, handicrafts, even homemade apple cider and apple pies. Eventually, they would buy the farm, become so prosperous that none of them would have to work anywhere else. And then they would just wait on the farm for Christ to return. Colt, 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 time to move into a proper compound, everybody. Everybody's excited. They even pulled in more people. Char Olson, Richard Brand's friend, and Ron and Susie Luff. The Luffs had recently become convinced that Jeffrey was someone special. Old Poop Fingers McGee, growing in power. Uh, Ron quit his job at the, at the James River Power Station in Springfield, listing his reason for leaving his desired relocation and church work. Ron and Susie will arrive with their two small children, Matthew and Amy, in September of 1987. As soon as Jeffrey paid the first month's rent on the Skirbis farmhouse, he and his followers get to work. They haul away trash, gut the interior, hang sheetrock, paint, paper, clean, and polish. And within two weeks, the rickety farmhouse is looking like a completely different property. By late September, it's ready. Jeffrey announces that Kevin, Richard, Shar, Danny, and Sharon will live with his family in the farmhouse. The Patricks, the Averys, the Luffs, they're going to live in their own apartments, but will still be required to financially support the commune. Of course, obviously. Uh, Greg had been invited to live at the farm, but decided to keep his apartment. While not doing renovations, Jeffrey held lessons. Sometimes it would last until three or four in the morning. Got to keep those followers tired and confused. Cult, cult, cult. If someone made a mistake in interpreting scriptures, uh, Jeffrey had a session with them, his word for punishment. Most of it was verbal abuse, stronger lessons in scripture. Dennis Patrick, Susie Luff, Dennis and Cheryl Avery received the most sessions and also his wife, Alice. Guessing she got some especially dirty sessions. Uh, Everyone worked at the farm except for Jeffrey and Alice. Prophets, obviously, were forbidden by God to have regular jobs because that would require them to submit to another human being, is what Alice told the group. And I guess that benefit extended to prophets' wives. And with so many working adults, the group was bringing in a lot of money now, or at least a lot of money for one man to hoard. Uh, Richard had gotten a $22,400 per year job as a civil engineer in a nearby town. Kevin collected about $18,000 annually as a clerk at a Veterans Administration hospital near Cleveland. Sharon earned minimum wage as a cashier at a convenience store. Uh, Shar got a job as a clerk at the Mark or Macro Department Store. Danny framed pictures at Gallup's Fine Art Store. Uh, Dennis Patrick worked first at Scandinavian Health Spa, later at Chemical Financial Corporation, earning uh, $20,850 annually. Greg earned $20,275 yearly as an accountant at Astro Travel Service. Ron operated a forklift at Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. 
earning $17,630 per year. And investigators will later estimate that Jeffrey and Alice are collecting between $1,500 to $2,000 a week from followers. Followers who are also busy cleaning the farmhouse, dusting, doing everyone's laundry, picking up after the children, doing all the cooking. Adjusted for inflation, that's roughly between four and five, uh, $4,000 and $5,400 a, a week actually today. And rent for their compound is $650 a month, about a third of their income for just one week. They are fucking killing it. Jeffrey is supposed to use the income to pay everyone's bills, but classic Jeffrey, <laughs> you know, he doesn't. Why not? Well, mysterious ways. No one but Jeffrey knew how the money was being spent. Certainly not on anything fun for the followers. Jeffrey frequently forbade them from even having a pizza night on Fridays. Meanwhile, Jeffrey would take himself and Alice out to regular dinners uh, or would order in from Red Lobster and eat that shit in front of the group who did not get it. What an asshole. Uh, God's prophet and his trusty sidekick, uh, Skidmark, they need some cheddar biscuits and shrimp, motherfuckers. Now go make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, for yourselves. The Averys were the only ones not making weekly financial contributions at this point. And that's because, you know, Dennis already gave them fucking $10,000 cash. And thanks mainly to that, they're broke. Dennis uh, held a slew of low-paying jobs since moving to Kirtland. None paid more than minimum wage, and the family had to apply for food stamps just to barely get by. Even though he's living a high life off of the work of others, Jeffrey soon begins to struggle with the anonymity of his new surroundings. Right? He's a prophet. Why isn't he being sought out for advice by the masses? Why isn't he being heralded as the true leader of the RDLS church? I mean, sure, Red Lobster Cheddar Biscuits were delicious. Pooping on skid marks fun, but his soul needs more than that. Soon, Jeffrey comes up with another bit of theology for his followers. Now he says that through interpreting scripture, he is convinced that God has given him a new name. The defecator, defiler of souls. No, the the destroyer. (laughs) He's the destroyer now. Jeffrey explains that God wants him to gather the residue of my servants, a symbolic reference to Jeffrey's followers. And with them, he is to cleanse the vineyard until it is saved. The vineyard is symbolic for the Kirtland temple, he says. So what he's saying here is that God wants him to take this fucking temple over by force. To do so, he gets his followers to watch First Blood, the film that told the story of John Rambo, Vietnam veteran, right? He took on an entire town's police force single-handedly, right? Sliced alone, holy shit. They're watching Rambo, not for entertainment value, for inspiration and actual planning. Over, Johnny. It's over. Nothing is over. Nothing. <laughs> you just don't turn it off. It wasn't my war. You asked me, I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. I picture Jeffrey Lundgren, red scrap of fabric tied around his forehead, a headband, fucking tank top, bandolier, bullet belt draped over his shoulder, just pacing back and forth in front of his devotees and his his farmhouse. Nothing is over. You don't just turn it off. We need to do what we need to do to take that temple. This wasn't my war. They left us no choice. His father's, yeah, no, yeah, Jeffrey's right. God, he's better than Rambo. Uh, Jeffrey now also regularly cites increasingly bloody passages from the Book of Mormon, telling followers that God is not afraid to kill. Just before Christmas, Jeffrey begins revealing specific details about how they're going to take over the Kirtland Temple. As he does with almost everything now, Jeffrey ties the temple takeover to the return of Jesus Christ. He says that Christ can only return if there's no wickedness in or near the temple. And that means every man, woman, and child who lives within a block of the temple, some 25 people roughly, have to be fucking executed including the many church leaders and RLDS members he had worked with back at the temple. Also, Luffman, fucking deal, his wife, Judy, and their three kids, 13, 10, and 5, they're going to need to be bound and gagged, brought into the temple where they will be taken before Jeffrey 
And then after reading several scriptures, Jeffrey is going to offer the entire Luffman family to God as a human sacrifice and then behead all five of them, beginning with Luffman, moving down the line. Oh, yes. Oh, Jesus would love that. If there's one thing I know about Jesus, he loves a beheading, loves to just fucking cut kids' heads off. Killer Christ returns. Uh, Jeffrey now also starts ordering his followers to stop reading their scriptural books. Mm-mm. Put your Bibles down. Instead of following along with the scripture, just listen to me tell it. Uh, that's the only way you're going to learn, uh, you know, the will of God Th- through me. I have to be the one through the words and wise, uh, the wise and infallible words of Lord Jeffrey. And Jeffrey being Jeffrey, he starts, you know, just kind of making some shit up. <laughs> when Alice confronts him about this, he shakes her hard and she relents, backs down. Meanwhile, to prepare for the coming temple war, nothing is over. You just don't turn it off. Jeffrey assigned everyone tasks. Uh, Richard was told to get copies of city maps that showed where gas and other power lines were located. Danny built a replica of the temple and the houses around it, put numbers on the ones where people were to be executed. My God, they're actually on board with killing all the families who happen to live near the temple. They believe that their God wants them to do this. They might as well worship some random serial killer. Since Dennis Patrick uh, lived less than one block from the police station, he is told to watch it, record when the officers change their shifts. Sharon compiles a list of gas stations in the area. Jeffrey also gives everybody nicknames. He calls himself Eagle One. <laughs> His son, Damon, now 17, is Eagle Two. I'm surprised he did, just didn't call himself John Rambo. Uh, Danny is Eagle Eye. <laughs> Richard is Talon One. Dennis Patrick is Talon Two. Ron is Falcon One. Greg is Falcon Two. The family farmhouse is dubbed the Eagle's Nest. The Red Barn is Red Eagle. The temple is Eagle's Mound. Uh, Alice is, of course, Skidmark. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and I don't know. She didn't, she didn't listen. In February of 1988, Jeffrey reveals that he has found the secret prayer that he was required to say in order to make the mountain of the Lord rise. So that's exciting. He said God had hidden it in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 13 and 14. Jeffrey said the key words were cast ye up, cast ye up. A few days later, Jeffrey uh, makes another exciting announcement. Says God has given him a specific date for them to attack the temple. Through looking at the temple door, just like Jeffrey said, you might look at a doctor's office door for their posted hours. He discovered that the two large circles and the three small circles you could see meant, obviously, they had to attack on May 3rd. Now, how do two large circles and three small circles add up to May 3rd? Well, you have to be a prophet to understand that. Sorry. Uh, If you don't get it, it's because you're not smart enough. I'm not either. Don't feel bad. We all just have to trust in Lord Jeffrey and know that it's correct. That's how it works. Don't think, you silly goose. Just believe. Uh, May the 3rd, also coincidentally, of course, Jeffrey's birthday, another sign. He said that he is God's chosen messenger. God wouldn't have let his birthday line up exactly with all those circles behind the door if he wasn't God's messenger. Uh, It seemed like Jeffrey was now having new revelations almost every day. One night, Jeffrey announced that God wanted them to actually take over the temple on May 1st, then hold police at bay until May 3rd when Christ would appear. Thank you, Jeffrey. Blessed be Jeffrey. Where are the heads of the Luffmans, Jeffrey? Dale, Judy, the children. Bring them to me. Bring them to Daddy. So I can feast on their neck flesh. Yes, Killer Christ is hungry. This is what Killer Christ wants. This is salvation. Now, the next day, Jeffrey showed the group six gas masks that he had brought to use if the police fired tear gas into the temple. His most worrisome prediction was delivered next. Only 12 people are going to survive the takeover. Because Jesus had, you know, 12 disciples. He said that himself, Skidmark, I mean Alice, their son Damon, they're guaranteed to survive. 
but only nine remaining adults are going to make it. That means four, sorry, have to die. And now things get competitive. (laughs) Everyone is vying for a spot on the survival list. Members start cornering Jeffrey, asking him if they're going to survive. Like these fucking lunatics actually truly believed all this crazy mumbo jumbo. Like they're legitimately nervous about this. Although they didn't know it, anyone who would ask Jeffrey would be reassured that they were safe. They would be told, uh, you know, the name of someone else who was going to die. Sometimes it might be Kevin because he's unclean somehow. Another time, Jeffrey said he's going to kill Dennis and Tanya Patrick to show the police he's serious. Uh, Basically, he'll tell Kevin that, you know, he's fine and the Patricks are going to die. Then turn around and tell the Patricks that they're fine and Kevin is going to die. I mean, these people are talking. Kevin will soon realize that they're being played. How did they not all realize that? The illusion for him finally starts crumbling. And he starts noticing that Jeffrey is feeding off the energy of all the new members. You know, they're constructing this elaborate fantasy together. It's all craziness. February 16th, 1988, the group has a chocolate sheet cake for dessert after dinner. Kristen Lundgren, nine years old, asks whose birthday it is. And Jeffrey said that it was Kevin's going away cake. Everyone assumed that Jeffrey was kidding. You know, Kevin sometimes left, came back. Uh, Kevin thought the message was clear that Jeffrey was going to kill him. So the next morning, he leaves for work as usual. But when he gets there, turns in his resignation, hurries to the bus station. This might be the best decision of Kevin's life. Uh, he has a friend called Jeffrey, tell him where the group's car is. When Jeffrey finds out, he tells Allison Shar that he's going to kill Kevin. Now vengeful, Jeffrey telephones Kevin's mother, but Kevin has already warned her not to tell Jeffrey where he's hiding. He has also telephoned the Veterans Administration Hospital where Kevin has worked in Cleveland and the one in Buffalo too, but Kevin has not left a forwarding address. In fact, he will spend the next several months hiding out in Buffalo. Yeah, he didn't take any of his belongings with him, only $5 in his pocket. He was that terrified. Finally, he decides to tell the Federal Bureau of Investigation about the Temple Takeover plan. He looks up the address in a telephone book, has a friend drop him off, but the FBI agents do not believe him, right? This true story is too fucking crazy. And you know what? Honestly, I wouldn't believe him either. After listening to Kevin's story, the agent dismissively said that the takeover sounded like a problem for local authorities. He then asked permission to take Kevin's photograph, (laughs) probably filed it under maniacs to keep an eye on. Uh, Kevin doesn't give up. He's convinced that Jeffrey's going to kill somebody, right? He, now he thinks about contacting the Kirtland police department and good on Kevin. By the beginning of April, all, all anyone could talk about at the farm is the upcoming temple takeover, right? Nothing is over. You just don't turn it off. I, feel, I picture them all dressed up like Rambo now. They speculate about what kind of food they're going to need. Who's going to take care of the kids, how fast it's going to take for camera crews to show up and document this. Uh, the group also gets a new member, Jeffrey's cousin, Debbie, uh, Oliveira's. Debbie had been in an RLDS marriage for 18 years before she divorced her husband in November of 1986. By the fall of 87, she's heavily in debt, dealing with suicidal ideation. She thinks joining Jeffrey's commune, it might cheer her up. Jeffrey now tells Debbie that Greg Winship is her true companion. He read it in between the lines. April 22nd, Jeffrey goes over the final details of their takeover. Everyone's going to arrive at the farmhouse on May 1st. The men are going to dress up in full camouflage military outfits, faces painted black. They're going to hike through the apple orchard behind the farm (laughs) and follow a right-of-way owned by an electric power company to the back of the RLDS church property. Like, no one's going to see that and be like, what the fuck are those weirdos doing and call the police? Uh, They're then going to split up into two groups. Ron, Dennis, and Greg are going to break into the temple. Meanwhile, Danny, Richard, and Damon, Jeffrey, they're going to go from house to house killing occupants. Uh Uh-huh. Then after doing that for a while, you know, within a block radius, then they're just going to capture the Luffman family, bring them to the temple uh, where the women and children will be waiting with the other men. Then Jeffrey will behead the Luffmans with a machete. <laughs> Hell yeah. Cut those innocent kids' fucking heads off. Do it for, do it for God. Uh, Jeffrey would then say a secret prayer, 
And on May 3rd, the mountain of the Lord will literally rise up. Jesus will appear to bless the 12 survivors of all this completely unnecessary, preposterous carnage. Uh, The Patricks will leave the house early that night. Afterwards, Jeffrey confides one last part of the plan to the remaining followers. Ron, Susie, Greg, Debbie, Richard, Sharon, Danny, Damon, uh, Shar, and Alice. He's going to kill Dennis Patrick once everyone in the temple uh, is in the temple. And Alice is going to kill Tanya with a nine millimeter pistol. Okay. April 28th, 1988. Kevin Curie contacts the Kirtland Police Department. Go, Kevin, go. Hail, Kevin. Police Chief Dennis Yarborough immediately recognizes the name Kevin. Uh, uh, or sorry, the name that Kevin gives him to check out, Jeffrey Lundgren. He'd heard all about Jeffrey's ongoing feud with Dale Luffman. And what's more, Jeffrey had come to the chief office, uh, chief's office himself in 1984, full of complaints about people looking in his windows. A few months later, uh, Yarborough had spotted Jeffrey driving a 1952 green Chevrolet, ran a check on the license plate, discovered it belonged to Danny Kraft Jr. Curious. Yarborough asked a few questions, discovered that Jeffrey had attracted, quote, several young followers. Yarrow believed that Jeffrey was capable of something like what Kevin was talking about. So he decides to telephone the FBI office in Painesville. The agent there says he can't help unless they have some kind of concrete evidence. Yarrow decides to ask his officers what they know about Jeffrey. Ron Andelisk, uh, or Ron Andelsek, 35-year-old patrolman, says that he had butted heads with Jeffrey just a few days before. A neighbor had complained because geese from Jeffrey's farm were running loose, and Andelsek had told Jeffrey to keep the geese penned. When Andelsek told the neighbor that the geese were being rounded up, she told him that Jeffrey and his followers were weird, mentioned that Caleb Lundgren, Jeffrey's son, told her daughter on May 3rd that the earth was going to open up and all of the devils and demons were going to come up. Now Yarbrough and his followers felt certain Caleb had heard his father talking about the temple takeover. Uh, Yarbrough briefed Kirtland Mayor Mario Marcopoli, asked for permission to pay his officers uh, overtime so that he could stake out the Lundgren farmhouse. They got permission, started their sweep, couldn't see anything going on inside the farmhouse, but Yarborough kept investigating. And hail police chief Dennis Yarborough. Hail Nimrod. During the next three days, Yarborough quietly talks with church officials, learns that Jeffrey had been fired for stealing church funds, is told Jeffrey despises Dale Luffman. With time running out before the predicted May 1st date, uh, Yarborough decides to confront Jeffrey directly. Pays him a visit, says that they had gotten some complaints about paramilitary groups training around the commune. Com, uh, excuse me, commune. He acted as though it was, you know, somebody else, not Jeffrey's group. And Yarbrough asked Jeffrey, you know, if he'd keep an eye out for them. Jeffrey agreed, and Yarbrough noticed that he looked very nervous. His eyes were jumping around like crazy while they talked. On the night of May 1st now, Yarbrough and three of his men stake out the temple and the church. And then this guy decided that that's where we're going to leave off for this week. Actually, Sophie picked this spot, and I agree. I know cliffhangers suck, right? But it's the best spot to, uh, to end this week's episode. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So, uh, no recap or takeaways for this week, because, you know, we're not done with this story. Nothing is over! Uh, next week, it gets weirder. Darker. Next week involves a, uh, uh, a failed doomsday prediction of sorts. Human sacrifice. Jeffrey taking another wife. More devious sexual shit. Uh, an FBI raid. And so much more crazy cult, cult, cult shenanigans. Right now, some credits, some time sucker updates, which include me clarifying an opinion I tossed out last week. Uh, first, the credits. Thanks to the Bad Magic team for help in production. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to uh, Logan Keith for direct, or I'm sorry, to uh, Tyler C, the Suck Ranger, for directing and producing today. Thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app, the Art Warlock, uh, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and helping run our socials. 
Thanks to Sophie Evans for the initial research. Hot damn, she found a, uh, a subject I have loved adding further research to and immersing myself in. Thanks to the All Seen Eyes, moderating the Cult of the Curious, private Facebook page, the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck and Bad Magic Reddit threads. And before we get into some listener updates, uh, yeah, just some clarification. Uh, last week, I said that I like that there are Girl Scouts and then Boy Scouts. I don't like it when girls join the Boy Scouts, boys join the Girl Scouts. I have no idea how anyone will react to this as I record this episode. That episode has not even been released yet. But after recording it, you know, uh, Tyler brought up how we might get some emails. Lindsay agreed. So I just felt like I should clarify. I still mean what I said, but I want to clarify why I said it. And all these matters, I really do try and assert, you know, uh, what I believe is the right thing. Not that I'm always right, of course. In this sense, you know, uh, like I, I just want to do what is what is the most fair thing for the most amount of people when I'm talking about stuff like this. And for this one, I was in Boy Scouts when we briefly had it in Riggins when I was in fifth, sixth grades, uh, maybe seventh grade as well. And I loved it. I loved that it was just boys because there was none of the heterosexual young teen tension that existed at school. No one was trying to look cool in front of, you know, this girl or that girl. No one was getting butt hurt because Kim Dowdy seemed to flirt with someone else instead of them. No one was trying to convince anyone to try and talk to Sarah Foster or whatever, how to go. We just got to be goofy, cut loose with each other. It was, it was beautiful. So much innocent fun. Adding a girl would have absolutely changed that dramatically. No sword fights with our pea streams in the woods. <laughs> no teasing each other the same way. Talking about it further with Lindsay, uh, she admitted that she likes some women's only groups, like the Jim Curves. For a while, it was the, uh, uh, you know, only women in every location. That seems to have changed in some areas, but, uh, you know, whatever. And what a bummer, because Lindsay talked about how some women just want to work out in a place where they don't have to worry about being hit on, being leered at by horny dudes, trying to memorize the shape of their labia through their yoga pants or whatever. And I think that is fair, you know, or what about a women's only sexual trauma group? Are some women going to feel more safe, more comfortable talking about being, you know, sexually assaulted in front of only women as opposed to around some men? Yeah, I would imagine so. I always think like what makes the most sense, feels the most fair, serves the most people. Unfortunately, too many people historically segregate in ways that I do not agree with in ways based on being bigoted assholes. But sometimes some form of this group is not for everyone does make sense to me, right? Life would just be so much easier if more people could just, for lack of a better phrase, be fucking cool and do things for the right moral reasons. Men and women could maybe even share the same locker rooms if it weren't for some dudes trying to rape women or stare gratuitously at their asses or tits while rocking boners. If we were all just rational robots programmed to all understand the same code of ethics, shit would be so much easier. But obviously we're a long ways from that. And I could keep talking about this in circles forever, attempting to further clarify my nuanced stance. Easy to just say, never be exclusionary. But I just don't think that that attitude fits every single situation. Okay, that's about all the clarif clarification I can give. Uh, now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Starting off with a beautiful message of awakening from Solid Sack Joe Stewart, who writes, Ah, you miserable moosh son of a bitch. Listen to the Three Mile Island episode and you queued up a movie, movie trailer. I have no idea what in the fucking hell you were trying to call it, but my ears heard grand, grand monsters. And I envision elderly folk eating alphabet generation hipsters while they vape outside of coffee bars or some shit. I was instantly drawn to such cinematic excellence. Obviously, I heard it wrong and it was called something else. Very disappointed. 
And that to, all that to say, thank you. In the last decade, I've been the wingnut that believed one political party was sent from God and the other was the devil. Since I began listening to you and hearing how your views have changed over time, I came to realize how ridiculous my views were. I have a very diverse family, Indian European with a gay son and an adopted uh, black white daughter, along with two more daughters, one that's a top real estate capitalist at 26, another that's a staunch Christian evangelist. The baby of the five is our youngest son who turned me on to time suck. Suffice it to say, our family gatherings are exciting. LOL. (laughs) I'm thankful for you and your challenging ideas to my echo chamber ideals. And I'm thankful for my straight, gay, black, white, Indian, Anglo, Republican, Democrat, independent, wacky as fuck, all American family. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. Joe in Kansas. Joe, what a beautiful message. Uh, I mean, you know, I currently think that both major parties might be on the devil's team. Uh, we we got to keep an eye on them both. Maybe a strong new third party will finally rise in the coming decade or something. The party of common sense and don't be a dick. I don't know. Anyway, good for you. Uh, loving your awesome, diverse, American as fuck family, right? Mix up those creeds and colors. Make something new. I love it. Hail Nimrod. And next up, Cult of Lucifina disciple Chris Ray has some respect and love he wants to share writing to our great suck master. I've uh, been a massive fan since early specials. Praise soft stroke. Ah, I got to relearn that story. And here come the spoons, motherfucker. After listening to the Night Witches episode, which was so inspiring and hearing your thoughts on the lack of recognition uh, women, you know, during the war would get by their governments and uh, for uh, other, other soldiers, co-soldiers, I can't help but think of the comparison I see in the industry that I work in. I work in coal mining in Australia, where I work with many men and women. As a heavy machinery operator, I see fantastic and terrible operators of both sexes. I and other friends that I work with hold no sexist judges on who we work with, only on their ability as an operator. I've seen some women, they can run rings around some of their male uh, coworkers. Frustrates me to no end to listen to some male coworkers that simply believe that women can't and shouldn't have a place and what they see as what should be a male-only workplace. I've been lucky enough to meet the woman that I will spend the rest of my life with while working in the industry. Not only is she the most amazing woman that I've ever met, she's also one of the best operators I've ever seen. Her efforts have been recognized and she's climbing up the ranks fast. Praise Lucifina. If you get the chance to read this, then please shout out to my queen, Amanda the most beautiful mother and partner I could wish for, and the most kick-arse dump truck D11 dozer operator that I've ever seen and soon-to-be digger operator. That's awesome. Please keep on sucking damn. Praise Bojangles. Hail Lucifina. Hail Nimrod. Forever a loyal member of the cult of the curious, Chris. Well, nice message, Chris. Good on you for reminding everyone again that the that the world has changed. You know, we don't need to keep thinking about, uh, uh, you know, men's work versus women's work. We can shift that paradigm around. Right, get a little more uh, fluid, a little more flexible, more of a meritocracy with careers, which is the best way. Like, who should get the job? The person most qualified for the job. Period. Right? Hell, hell, Nimrod and Lucifina. See, I don't uh, always uh, like the men and women. It's just situational to be separated. Uh, now up, Nuke Love and Sack. Jordan Peters has some knowledge to drop. Writing, dear General Suckmaster Supreme, Italian language expert at large. I know I had to fight the urge to say stupid shit when I heard one person's Italian's name. This week, uh, I wanted to write you regarding the suck on Three Mile Island. I love the episode, found it to be like most of your content, educational, thought provoking. One thing that came to mind as I listened was the frustrating story of Vermont Yankee. And I didn't know this about the story before you shared it. Energy's Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant came online in the early 70s and for many decades was the largest energy producer in Vermont and at one point provided nearly half of the electricity consumed in the whole state. But from its inception, Vermont Yankee and its operations, like many other nuclear facilities, was plagued by protests from anti-nuclear activists until its closing in 2014. 
Growing up in the 90s in Vermont, I never knew much about the facility, as it was about two hours away from where I lived, and my parents seemed to subscribe to an ignorance-is-bliss approach to many issues at the time, which in retrospect may have had a controlling stake in the eventual demise of their marriage. Wasn't until I got out of college and started working in the forestry sector that I learned about the facility and how contentious its operations were. I was doing a lot of work in the town of Vermont, or I'm sorry, excuse me, in the town of Vernon, where the facility is located during the summer of 2013. During that time, I noticed a stark difference in that town versus the majority of other small towns in Vermont. It's pristine condition. Hard-pressed you would be to find a road not black with freshly laden asphalt, a public building older than 30 years, a tax rate that was as low as Vernon's. The police all drove brand new cruisers, had the latest equipment, the schools were all adequately funded, and you got a sense just driving through town how much that plant meant to the health of the area. I spoke to the town clerk one day and remarked how beautiful, well-maintained the town was. Missing nary a beach, she got up from her chair, walked over to the window, and pointed to the shores of the Connecticut where Vermont Yankee lay. She went on to say that the facility paid so much in taxes that not only were the residents unburdened by the same high tax rates as other towns, but there were also many lucrative jobs that were otherwise very hard to find in the area. In speaking with some of the residents in town, I never heard anything but positive remarks about the plant, and these were the people that live within spitting distance of it. Surely, if there was legitimate concern to be had over the safety of these facilities, these people would have been the first to vocalize it. Instead, there was nothing but gratitude that the facility was in their town. Fast forward to 2017, I returned to Vernon as part of a work project driving to what might have been, uh, well, a different world. Shuttered since 2014, the closure of Vermont Yankee three years prior brought with it a substantial job loss and vastly increased tax burden to its residents who once relied on the facility's operation. I spoke with a gentleman that had built a family and a livelihood in Vernon since moving there in the mid 70s, and he was concerned that he would have to move away because of the increased cost that the residents would now have to bear in the absence of the power plant. It was very sad to see such a change in such a short amount of time, but it really drove home the point what a loss it was for the surrounding communities. This is something I wonder if the protesters in Burlington considered when they took part in heralding in Vermont's Yankees closure. I truly understand the concern over nuclear power. If it goes wrong, it could easily go very, very, very wrong. But like you mentioned in your episode, we're not consuming less energy. They're not making any more oil. Solar hasn't become the knight in shining army armor energy source that it was touted to be. If we truly want green energy in an energy independent future, which I think we need to strive for, I don't see a better source than nuclear power. If we invest in the upkeep and safety of these facilities, as well as the training needed to competently operate, competently operate one, the level seven Chernobyl grade nuclear accidents could be forever consigned to the history books. My hope for the future is that we overcome our collective anxieties about nuclear power and realize that it might be our only escape from the shackles of energy dependence that we currently find ourselves locked in. It might take a little money to do so, but to have ample, clean, dependable, cost-effective energy might be a savior in an increasingly unstable environmental, political, and economic climate. I know this was long, but if you made it this far without drooling on yourself, and even if you did drill on yourself, I thank you for your time and the work you do. You and your team of succulent, glistening father daddies put together an amazing show, and I hope to see you live in the future. Love and respect, Jordan in Vermont. Well, thank you, Jordan in Vermont, for a lovely message. Uh, you shared so many great thoughts. And no, I doubt those protesters did think of the people in Vernon. And there should be no environmental concern long-term over nuclear power plants. If there are some major disasters, the planet overall is going to be fine. We might not be fine as a species, but Earth, she'll repair herself. A lot of us dying in a nuclear disaster might be the best thing that's ever happened to Mother Earth, right? Looking at pictures of the forest around Chernobyl, man, Mother Earth is thriving over there. Uh, another benefit of nuclear power 
if Europe currently had enough nuclear power plants, it wouldn't need any of Russia's gas for energy consumption. I mean, how great would that be not to need that shit from Putin? How far could that go towards standing up to him? And for us, how great to never have to worry about being dependent on any foreign nation for energy needs if we had plenty of nuclear power. And finally, something silly that Jody Bur- uh, Butter Eagle uh, <laughs> sent in. She got Cummins lot hard. She writes, I don't know where to start uh, to send this actually, but I just got Cummins lot horribly. I usually work third shift hours, so I'm normally up at night. Typically, I go to the laundromat near my house between 1 and 3 a.m. Another reason I'm going at this time is I'm almost always alone. I can play STD or yeah, yeah, scared to death or time suck on my Bluetooth speaker as loud as I want and get some shit done. Well, during episode 327 on Joseph Mengele, you go on this awesome and hilarious rant about how we love Joseph Mengele so much that we want him to use his massive Aryan cock with large blue veins and blonde Aryan pubic hair to impregnate our very souls. It was during said rant that the owner of the laundromat quietly walked in and ended up standing only two to three feet from me, well within hearing distance. When I finally realize he's hearing all this, I try to start coughing, humming, making any fucking noise possible to distract him from what I know he's already hurt. By the time I cut it off, right after Dan says he hopes someone got Cummins Laud, dude looked at me like I had just sacrificed an infant to Satan on his washing machine. It was mortifying and hilarious. I hate you and love you so much, Jody. Yes, Jody, yes. Uh, wow, that was a, that was a brutal one. Uh, gonna be getting a stink eye from that guy for quite some time. Which is, you know, probably probably for the best. Probably better than the alternative in that situation. Like, how uncomfortable would it be if he liked it? Like, like if he heard that out of context and he was like, ooh, starts flirting with you, saying stuff like, oh, I like you. Oh, you get it. Finally, someone really gets it. That's all for today, everybody. Thanks for sending in your messages. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Uh, I cannot wait to complete the story next week. Please do not, uh, without at least politely asking permission, you know, without, you know, pressuring anybody, take a shit on someone's tits in the bathtub this week. They just got clean. Can't you still come with you or someone with you? Just keeps on sucking. Magic Productions. Hey, baby. Uh, uh, yeah, what are you doing right now? Are you home? Okay, good, good, good. I, uh, I don't know. I just feeling kind of inspired. I know we wanted to kind of shake things up. Uh, go to the bathroom. I want you to take all your clothes off, and I want to shit on your tits and call you Skidmark. Hello. Hello. Huh? <laughs> and she says she's adventurous. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen. 
for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.